This is Audible. Penguin Audio presents Blood Rights by Jim Butcher. Read by James Marston. Chapter 1 The building was on fire, and it wasn't my fault. My boots slipped and slid on the tile floor as I sprinted around a corner and toward the exit doors to the abandoned school building on the southwest edge of Chicagoland. Distant street lights provided the only light in the dusty hall and left huge swaths of blackness crouching in the old classroom doors. I carried an elaborately carved wooden box about the size of a laundry basket in my arms, and its weight made my shoulders burn with effort. I'd been shot in both of them at one time or another, and the muscle burn quickly started changing into deep, aching stabs. The damn box was heavy, not even considering its contents. Inside the box, a bunch of flop-eared gray and black puppies whimpered and whined, jostled back and forth as I ran. One of the puppies, his ear already notched where some kind of doggy misadventure had marked him, was either braver or more stupid than his littermates. He scrambled around until he got his paws onto the lip of the box and set up a painfully high-pitched barking full of squeaky snarls, big dark eyes focused behind me. I ran faster, my knee-length black leather duster swishing against my legs. I heard a rustling, hissing sound and juked left as best I could. A ball of some kind of noxious-smelling substance that looked like tar went zipping past me, engulfed in yellow-white flame. It hit the floor several yards beyond me and promptly exploded into a little puddle of hungry fire. I tried to avoid it, but my boots had evidently been made for walking, not sprinting on dusty tile. They slid out from under me, and I fell. I controlled it as much as I could and wound up sliding on my rear, my back to the fire. It got hot for a second, but the wards I'd woven over my duster kept it from burning me. Another flaming glob crackled toward me, and I barely turned in time. The substance, whatever the hell it was, clung like napalm to what it hit, and burned with a supernatural ferocity that had already burned a dozen metal lockers to slag in the dim halls behind me. The goop hit my left shoulder blade and slid off the protective spells on my mantled coat, spattering the wall beside me. I flinched nonetheless, lost my balance, and fumbled the box. Fat little puppies tumbled onto the floor with a chorus of whimpers and cries for help. I checked behind me. The guardian demons looked like demented purple chimpanzees, except for the raven-black wings sprouting from their shoulders. There were three of them that had escaped my carefully crafted paralysis spell, and they were hot on my trail, bounding down the halls in long leaps assisted by their black-feathered wings. As I watched, one of them reached down between its crooked legs and, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but it gathered up the kind of ammunition primates in zoos traditionally rely upon. The monkey demon hurled it with a chittering scream, and it combusted in midair. I had to duck before the noxious ball of incendiary goop smacked into my nose. I grabbed puppies and scooped them into the box, then started running. The demon monkeys burst into fresh howls. Squeaky barks behind me made me look back. The little notch-eared puppy had planted his clumsy paws solidly on the floor and was barking defiantly at the oncoming demon chimps. Damn it, I cursed and reversed course. The lead monkey swooped down at the puppy. I made like a ball player, slid in feet first, and planted the heel of my boot squarely on the end of the demon's nose. 
I'm not heavily built, but I'm most of a head taller than six feet, and no one ever thought I was a lightweight. I kicked the demon hard enough to make it screech and veer off. It slammed into a metal locker and left an inches-deep dent. Stupid little fuzz bucket, I muttered and recovered the puppy. This is why I have a cat. The puppy kept up its tirade of ferocious, squeaking snarls. I pitched him into the box without ceremony, ducked two more flaming blobs, and started coughing on the smoke already filling the building as I resumed my retreat. Light was growing, back where I'd come from, as the demon's flaming missiles chewed into the old walls and floor, spreading with a malicious glee. I ran for the front doors of the old building, slamming the opening bar with my hip and barely slowing down. A sudden weight hit my back, and something pulled viciously at my hair. The chimp demon started biting at my neck and ear. It hurt. I tried to spin and throw it off me, but it had a good hold. The effort, though, showed me a second demon heading for my face, and I had to duck to avoid a collision. I let go of the box and reached for the demon on my back. It howled and bit my hand. Snarling and angry, I turned around and threw my back at the nearest wall. The monkey demon evidently knew that tactic. It flipped off of my shoulders at the last second, and I slammed the base of my skull hard against a row of metal lockers. A burst of stars blinded me for a second, and by the time my vision cleared, I saw two of the demons diving toward the box of puppies. They both hurled searing blobs at the wooden box, splattering it with flame. There was an old fire extinguisher on the wall, and I grabbed it. My monkey attacker came swooping back at me. I rammed the end of the extinguisher into its nose, knocking it down, then reversed my grip on the extinguisher and sprayed a cloud of dusty white chemical at the carved box. I got the fire put out, but for good measure, I unloaded the thing into the other two demons' faces, creating a thick cloud of dust. I grabbed the box and hauled it out the door, and then slammed the school doors shut behind me. There were a couple of thumps from the other side of the doors, and then silence. Panting, I looked down at the box of whimpering puppies. A bunch of wet black noses and eyes looked back up at me from under a white dusting of extinguishing chemical. <sighs> Hell's bells, I panted at them. You guys are lucky Brother Wang wants you back so much. If he hadn't paid half up front, I'd be the one in the box and he'd be carrying me. A bunch of little tails wagged hopefully. Stupid dogs, I growled. I hauled the box into my arms again and started schlepping it toward the old school's parking lot. I was about halfway there when something ripped the steel doors of the school inward against the swing of their hinges. A low, loud bellow erupted from inside the building, and then a Kong-sized version of the chimp demons came stomping out of the doorway. It was purple, it had wings, and it looked really pissed off. At least eight feet tall, it had to weigh four or five times what I did. As I stared at it, two little monkey demons flew directly at Demon Kong and were simply absorbed by the bigger demon's bulk upon impact. Kong gained another eighty pounds or so and got a bit bulkier. Not so much Monkey Kong, then, as Monkey Voltron. The original crowd of guardian demons must have escaped my spell with that combining maneuver pooling all of their energy into a single vessel and using the greater strength provided by density to power through my binding. Kongtron spread wings as wide as a small airplane's and leapt at me with a completely unfair amount of grace. 
Being a professional investigator, as well as a professional wizard, I had seen slobbering beasties before. Over the course of many encounters and many years, I have successfully developed a standard operating procedure for dealing with big, nasty monsters. Run away. Me and Monty Python. The parking lot and the Blue Beetle, my beat-up old Volkswagen, were only thirty or forty yards off, and I can really move when I'm feeling motivated. Kong bellowed. It motivated me. There was the sound of a small explosion, then a blaze of red light, brighter than the nearby street lamps. Another fireball hit the ground a few feet wide of me and detonated like a Civil War cannonball, gouging out a coffin-sized crater in the pavement. The enormous demon roared and shot past me on black vulture wings, banking to come around for another pass. Thomas! I screamed. Start the car! The passenger door opened, and an unwholesomely good-looking young man with dark hair, tight jeans, and a leather jacket worn over a bare chest poked his head out and peered at me over the rims of round, green-glassed spectacles. Then he looked up and behind me. His jaw dropped open. Start the freaking car! I screamed. Thomas nodded and dove back into the beetle. It coughed and wheezed and shuddered to life. The surviving headlight flicked on, and Thomas gunned the engine and headed for the street. For a second, I thought he was going to leave me, but he slowed down enough that I caught up with him. Thomas leaned across the car and pushed the passenger door open. I grunted with effort and threw myself into the car. I almost lost the box, but managed to get it just before the notch-eared puppy pulled himself up to the rim, evidently determined to go back and do battle. What the hell was that? Thomas screamed. His black hair, shoulder-length, curling and glossy, whipped around his face as the car gathered speed and drew the cool autumn wind through the open windows. His gray eyes were wide with apprehension. What is that, Harry? Just drive! I shouted. I stuffed the box of whimpering puppies into the back seat, grabbed my blasting rod, and climbed out the open window so that I was sitting on the door, chest to the car's roof. I twisted to bring the blasting rod in my right hand to bear on the demon. I drew in my will, my magic, and the end of the blasting rod began to glow with a cherry red light. I was about to loose a strike against the demon when it swooped down with another fireball in its hand and flung it at the car. Look out! I screamed. Thomas must have seen it coming in the mirror. The beetle swerved wildly, and the fireball hit the asphalt, bursting into a roar of flame and concussion that broke windows on both sides of the street. Thomas dodged a car parked on the curb by roaring up onto the sidewalk, bounced gracelessly, and nearly went out of control. The bounce threw me from my perch on the closed door. I was wondering what the odds were against finding a soft place to land when I felt Thomas grab my ankle. He held on to me and drew me back into the car with a strength that would have been shocking to anyone who didn't know that he wasn't human. He braced me with his hold on my leg, and as the huge demon dove down again, I pointed my blasting rod at it and snarled, Fuego! A lance of white-hot fire streaked from the tip of my blasting rod into the late night air, illuminating the street like a flash of lightning. Bouncing along on the car like that, I expected to miss. But I beat the odds, and the burst of flame took Kongtron right in the belly. It screamed and faltered, plummeting to earth. Thomas swerved back out onto the street. The demon started to get up. 
Stop the car! I screamed. Thomas mashed down the brakes and I nearly got reduced to sidewalk pizza again. I hung on as hard as I could, but by the time I had my balance, the demon had hauled itself to its feet. I growled in frustration, readied another blast, and aimed carefully. What are you doing? Thomas shouted. You lamed him. Let's run. No, I snapped back. If we leave it here, it's going to take things out on whoever it can find. But it won't be us. I tuned Thomas out and readied another strike, pouring my will into the blasting rod until wisps of smoke began emerging from the length of its surface. Then I let Kong have it right between its black, beady eyes. The fire hit it like a wrecking ball, right on the chin. The demon's head exploded into a cloud of luminous purple vapor and sparkles of scarlet light, which I have to admit looked really neat. Demons who come into the mortal world don't have bodies as such. They create them, like a suit of clothes, and as long as the demon's awareness inhabits the construct body, it's as good as real. Having its head blown up was too much damage for even the demon's life energy to support. The body flopped around on the ground for a few seconds, and then the Kong demon's earthly form stopped moving and dissolved into a lumpy-looking mass of translucent gelatin. Ectoplasm. Matter from the never-never. A surge of relief made me feel a little dizzy, and I slid bonelessly back into the beetle. Allow me to reiterate, Thomas panted a minute later. What the hell was that? I settled down onto the seat, breathing hard. I buckled up and checked that the puppies and their box were both intact. They were and I closed my eyes with a sigh. Shun, I said. Chinese spirit creatures, demons, shapeshifters. Christ, Dresden, you almost got me killed. Don't be a baby, you're fine. Thomas frowned at me. You at least could have told me. I did tell you, I said. I told you at Max that I'd give you a ride home, but that I had to run an errand first. Thomas scowled. An errand is getting a tank of gas or picking up a carton of milk or something. It is not getting chased by flying purple pyromaniac gorillas hurling incendiary poo. Next time, take the L. He glared at me. Where are we going? O'Hare. Why? I waved vaguely at the back seat. Returning stolen property to my client. He wants to get it back to Tibet, pronto. Anything else you're neglecting to tell me? Ninja wombats or something? I wanted you to see how it feels, I said. What's that supposed to mean? Come on, Thomas. You never go to Mac's place to hang out and chum around. You're wealthy. You've got connections, and you're a freaking vampire. You didn't need me to give you a ride home. You could have taken a cab, called for a limo, or talked some woman into taking you. Thomas's scowl faded away replaced by a careful, expressionless mask. Oh? Then why am I here? I shrugged. Doesn't look like you showed up to bushwhack me. I guess you're here to talk. Razor intellect. You should be a private investigator or something. Are you going to sit there insulting me or are you going to talk? Yeah, Thomas said. I need a favor. I snorted. What favor? You do remember that technically we're at war, right? 
Wizards versus vampires ring any bells? If you like, you can pretend that I'm employing subversive tactics as part of a fiendishly elaborate ruse meant to manipulate you, Thomas said. Good, I said. Because if I went to all the trouble of starting a war and you didn't want to participate, it would hurt my feelings. He grinned. I bet you're wondering whose side I'm on. No, I snorted. You're on Thomas's side. The grin widened. Thomas has the kind of whiter-than-white boyish grin that makes women's panties spontaneously evaporate. Granted. But I've done you some favors over the past couple of years. I frowned. He had, though I didn't know why. Yeah? So? So now it's my turn, he said. I've helped you. Now I need payback. Ah, what do you want me to do? I want you to take a case for an acquaintance of mine. He needs your help. I don't really have time, I said. I have to make a living. Thomas flicked a piece of monkey flambe off the back of his hand and out the window. You call this living? Jobs are a part of life. Maybe you've heard of the concept. It's called work. See, what happens is that you suffer through doing annoying and humiliating things until you get paid not enough money like those Japanese game shows, only without all the glory. Plebe, I'm not asking you to go pro bono. He'll pay your fee. Bah, I muttered. What's he need help with? Thomas frowned. He thinks someone is trying to kill him. I think he's right. Why? There have been a couple of suspicious deaths around him. Like? Two days ago, he sent his driver girl named Stacy Willis, out to the car with his golf clubs so he could get in a few holes before lunch. Willis opened the trunk and got stung to death by about 20,000 bees who had somehow swarmed into the limo in the time it took her to walk up to the door and back. I nodded. Huh. Can't argue there. Gruesomely suspicious. The next morning, his personal assistant, a young woman named Sheila Barks, was hit by a runaway car. Killed instantly. I pursed my lips. That doesn't sound so odd. She was water skiing at the time. I blinked. How the hell did that happen? Bridge over the reservoir was the way I heard it. Car jumped the rail, landed right on her. Huh, I said. Any idea who is behind it? None. Think it's an entropy curse? Thomas asked. If so, it's a sloppy one, but strong as hell. Those are some pretty melodramatic deaths. I checked on the puppies. They had fallen together into one dusty lump and were sleeping. The notch-eared pup lay on top of the pile. He opened his eyes and gave me a sleepy little growl of warning. Then he went back to sleep. Thomas glanced back at the box. Cute little furballs. What's their story? Guardian dogs for some monastery in the Himalayas. Someone snatched them and came here. A couple of monks hired me to get them back. What, they don't have dog pounds in Tibet? I shrugged. They believe these dogs have a foo heritage. Is that like epilepsy or something? I snorted and put my hand, palm down, out the window, waggling it back and forth to make an airfoil in the wind of the beetle's passage. The monks think their great-grandcestor was a divine spirit animal, celestial guardian spirit, foo dog. They believe it makes the bloodline special. 
Is it? How the hell should I know, man? I'm just the repo guy. Some wizard you are. It's a big universe, I said. No one can know it all. Thomas fell quiet for a while, and the road whispered by. Uh, do you mind if I ask what happened to your car? I looked around at the Beatles' interior. It wasn't Volkswagen standard anymore. The seat covers were gone, so was the padding underneath. So was the interior carpet and big chunks of the dashboard that had been made out of wood. There was a little vinyl left and some of the plastic and anything made out of metal, but everything else had been stripped completely away. I'd done some makeshift repairs with several one-by-sixes, some hanger wire, some cheap padding from the camping section at Walmart, and a lot of duct tape. It gave the car a real postmodern look, by which I meant that it looked like something fashioned from the wreckage after a major nuclear exchange. On the other hand, the Beatles' interior was very, very clean. My glasses are half full, damn it. Mold demons, I said. Mold demons ate your car? Sort of. They were called out of the decay in the car's interior and used anything organic they could find to make bodies for themselves. You called them? Oh, hell no. They were a present from the guest villain a few months ago. I hadn't heard there was any action this summer. I have a life, man. And my life isn't all about feuding demigods and nations at war and solving a mystery before it kills me. Thomas lifted an eyebrow. It's also about mold demons and flaming monkey poo. What can I say? I put the ick in magic. I see. Hey, Harry, can I ask you something? I guess. Did you really save the world? I mean, like the last two years in a row? I shrugged. Sort of. Word is you capped a fairy princess and headed off a war between winter and summer, Thomas said. Mostly I was saving my own ass. Just happened that the world was in the same spot. There's an image that will give me nightmares, Thomas said. What about those demon hell guys last year? I shook my head. They'd have let loose a nasty plague, but it wouldn't have lasted very long. They were hoping it would escalate into a nice apocalypse. They knew there wasn't much chance of it, but they were doing it anyway. Like the lotto, Thomas said. Yeah, I guess. The genocide lotto. And you stopped them. I helped do it and lived to walk away. But there was an unhappy ending. What? I didn't get paid. For either case... I make more money from flaming demon monkey crap. That's just wrong. Thomas laughed a little and shook his head. I don't get it. Don't get what? Why you do it? Do what? He slouched down in the driver's seat. The Lone Ranger impersonation. You get pounded to scrap every time you turn around, and you barely get by on the gumshoe work. You live in that dank little cave of an apartment, alone. You've got no woman, no friends, and you drive this piece of crap. Your life is kind of pathetic. Is that what you think? I asked. Call them like I see them. I laughed. Why do you think I do it? He shrugged. All I can figure is that either you're nursing a deep and sadistic self-hatred, or else you're insane. I gave you the benefit of the doubt and left monumental stupidity off the list. I kept on smiling. 
Thomas, you don't really know me, not at all. I think I do. I've seen you under pressure. I shrugged. Yeah, but you see me what? Maybe a day or two each year? Usually when something's been warming up to kill me by beating the tar out of me. So? So that doesn't cover what my life is like the other 363 days, I said. You don't know everything about me. My life isn't completely about magical mayhem and creative pyromania in Chicago. Oh, that's right. I heard you went to exotic Oklahoma a few months back. Something about a tornado in the National Severe Storms Lab. I was doing the new summer lady a favor, running down a rogue storm sylph. Got to go all over the place in those tornado chaser geek mobiles. You should have seen the look on the driver's face when he realized that the tornado was chasing us. It's a nice story, Harry, but what's the point? Thomas asked. My point is that there's a lot of my life you haven't seen. I have friends. Monster hunters, werewolves, and a talking skull. I shook my head. More than that, I like my apartment. Hell, for that matter, I like my car. You like this piece of junk? She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts, kid. Thomas slouched down in his seat, his expression skeptical. Now you've forced me to reconsider the monumentally stupid explanation. I shrugged. Me and the Blue Beetle kick ass, in a four-cylinder kind of way, but it still gets kicked. Thomas's face lost all expression. What about Susan? When I get angry, I'd like to be able to pull off a great stone face like that, but I don't do it so well. What about her? You cared about her. You got her involved in your life. She got torn up because of you. She got attention from all kinds of nasties, and she nearly died. He kept staring ahead. How do you live with that? I started to get angry, but I had a rare flash of insight, and my ire evaporated before it could fully condense. I studied Thomas's profile at a stoplight and saw him working hard to look distant, like nothing was touching him, which would mean that something was touching him. He was thinking of someone important to him. I had a pretty good idea who it was. How's Justine? I asked. His features grew colder. It isn't important. Okay, but how is Justine? I'm a vampire, Harry. The words were cold and distant, but not steady. She's my girlfriend. His voice stumbled on the word, and he tried to cover it with a low cough. She's my lover. She's food. That's how she is. Ah, I said. I like her, you know. Ever since she blackmailed me into helping you at Bianca's masquerade, that took guts. Yeah, he said. She's got that. How long have you been seeing her now? Four years, Thomas said. Almost five. Anyone else? No. Burger King, I said. Thomas blinked at me. What? Burger King, I said. I like to eat at Burger King. But even if I could afford to do it, I wouldn't eat my meals there every day for almost five years. What's your point? Thomas asked. 
My point is that it's pretty clear that Justine isn't just food to you, Thomas. He turned his head and stared at me for a moment, his expression empty and his eyes inhumanly blank. She is. She has to be. Why don't I believe you, I said. Thomas stared at me, his eyes growing even colder. Drop the subject. Right now. I decided not to push. He was working hard not to give anything away, so I knew he was full of crap. But if he didn't want to discuss it, I couldn't force him. Hell, for that matter, I didn't want to. Thomas was an annoying wise-ass who tended to make everyone he met want to kill him. And when I have that much in common with someone, I can't help but like him a little. It wouldn't hurt to give him some space. On the other hand, it was easy for me to forget what he was, and I couldn't afford that. Thomas was a vampire of the White Court. They didn't drink blood. They fed on emotions, on feelings, drawing the life energy from their prey through them. The way I understood it, it was usually during sex, and rumor had it that their kind could seduce a saint. I'd seen Thomas start to feed once, and whatever it was that made him not quite human had completely taken control of him. It left him a cold, beautiful, marble-white being of naked hunger. It was an acutely uncomfortable memory. The Whites weren't as physically formidable or aggressively organized as the Red Court, and they didn't have the raw, terrifying power of the Black Court, but they didn't have all the usual vampire weaknesses either. Sunlight wasn't a problem for Thomas, and from what I'd seen, crosses and other holy articles didn't bother him either. But just because they weren't as inhuman as the other courts didn't make the whites less dangerous. In fact, the way I saw it, it made them more of a threat in some ways. I know how to handle it when some slime-covered horror from the pits of hell jumps up in my face. But it would be easy to let down my guard for someone nearly human. Speaking of which, I told myself, I was agreeing to help him and take a job, just as though Thomas were any other client. It probably wasn't the smartest thing I'd ever done. It had the potential to lead to lethally unhealthy decisions. He fell silent again. Now that I wasn't running and screaming and such, the car started to get uncomfortably cold. I rolled up the window, shutting out the early autumn air. So, he said, Will you help me out? I sighed. I shouldn't even be in the same car with you. I've got enough problems with the White Council. Gee, your own people don't like you. Cry me a river. Bite me, I said. What's his name? Arturo Genosa. He's a motion picture producer starting up his own company. Is he at all clued in? Sort of. He's a normal but he's real superstitious. Why did you want him to come to me? He needs your help, Harry. If he doesn't get it, I don't think he's going to live through the week. I frowned at Thomas. Entropy curses are a nasty business, even when they're precise, much less when they're that sloppy. I'd be risking my ass trying to deflect them. I've done as much for you. I thought about it for a moment. Then I said, Yeah, you have. And I didn't ask for any money for it, either. All right, I said. I'll talk to him. No guarantees. 
But if I do take the case, you're going to pay me to do it, on top of what this Arturo guy shells out. This is how you return favors, is it? I shrugged. So, get out of the car. He shook his head. Fine, you'll get double. No, I said, not money. He arched an eyebrow and glanced at me over the rims of his green fashion spectacles. I want to know why, I said. I want to know why you've been helping me. If I take the case, you come clean with me. You wouldn't believe me if I did. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. Thomas frowned, and we drove for several minutes in silence. Okay, he said then. Deal. Done, I responded. Shake on it. We did. His fingers felt very cold. Chapter 2 We went to O'Hare. I met Brother Wang in the chapel at the International Concourse. He was a short, wiry Asian man in sweeping robes the color of sunset. His bald head gleamed, making his age tough to guess, though his features were wrinkled with the marks of someone who smiles often. Misa Dresden, he said, breaking into a wide smile as I came in with a box of sleeping puppies. Our little one-dogs you have given to us. Brother Wang's English was worse than my Latin, and that's saying something, but his body language was unmistakable. I returned his smile and offered him the box with a bow of my head. It was my pleasure. Wang took the box and set it down carefully, then started gently sorting through its contents. I waited, looking around the little chapel, a plain room built to be a quiet space for meditation, so that those who believed in something would have a place to pay honor to their faith. The airport had redecorated the room with a blue carpet instead of a beige one. They'd repainted the walls. There was a new podium at the front of the room and half a dozen replacement padded pews. I guess that much blood leaves a permanent stain, no matter how much cleaner you dump on it. I put my foot on the spot where a gentle old man had given up his life to save mine. It made me feel sad, but not bitter. If we had it to do again, he and I would make the same choices. I just wished I'd been able to know him longer than I had. It's not everyone who can teach you something about faith without saying a word to do it. Brother Wang frowned at the white powder all over the puppies and held up one dust-coated hand with an inquisitive expression. Oops, I said. Ah, Wang said, nodding. Oops. Okay, oops, he frowned at the box. Something wrong? Is it that all the little one dogs are boxed in? I shrugged. I got all of them that were in the building. I don't know if anyone moved some of them before I did. Okay, Brother Wang said. Less is more better than nothing. He straightened and offered me his hand. Much thanks from my brothers. I shook it. Welcome. Plain leaving now for home. Wang reached into his robe and pulled out an envelope. He passed it to me, bowed once more, then took the box of puppies and swept out of the room. I counted the priest's money, which probably says something about my level of cynicism. I'd racked up a fairly hefty fee on this one, first picking up the trail of the sorcerer who had stolen the pups, 
then tracking him down and snooping around long enough to know when he went out to get some dinner. It had taken me nearly a week of sixteen-hour days to find the concealed location of the room where the pups were held. They asked me to go get them, too, so I had to identify the demons guarding them and work out a spell that would neutralize them without, for example, burning down the building. Oops. All in all, my pay amounted to a couple of nice, solid stacks of Ben Franklins. I'd logged a ton of hours in tracking them down, and then added on a surcharge for playing repo. Of course, if I'd known about the flaming poo, I'd have added more. Some things demand overtime. I went back to the car. Thomas was sitting on the hood of the Beetle. He hadn't bothered moving it to the actual parking lot, instead taking up a section of curb at the loading zone outside the concourse. A patrol cop had evidently come over to tell him to move it, but she was a fairly attractive woman, and Thomas was Thomas. He had taken off her hat and had it perched on his head at a rakish angle, and the cop looked relaxed and was laughing as I came walking up. Hey, I said, let's get moving, things to do. Alas, he said, taking off the hat and offering it back to the officer with a little bow. Unless you're about to arrest me, Elizabeth. Not this time, I suppose, the cop said. Damn the luck, Thomas said. She smiled at him then frowned at me. Aren't you Harry Dresden? Yeah. The cop nodded, putting on her hat. Thought I recognized you. Lieutenant Murphy says you're good people. Thanks. It wasn't a compliment. A lot of people don't like Murphy. Ah, uh, shucks, I said. I blush when I feel all flattered like that. The cop wrinkled her nose. What's that smell? I kept a straight face. Burned monkey poo. She eyed me warily for a second to see if I was teasing her, then rolled her eyes. The cop stepped up onto the sidewalk and began moving on down it. Thomas swung his legs off the car and pitched my keys at me. I caught them and got in on the driver's side. Okay, I said when Thomas got in. Where do I meet this guy? He's holding a little soiree for his filming crew tonight in a condo on the Gold Coast. Drinks, DJ, snacks, that kind of thing. Snacks, I said. I'm in. Just promise me you won't fill up your pockets with peanuts and cookies. Thomas gave me directions to a posh apartment building a few miles north of the loop, and I got moving. Thomas was silent during the drive. Up here on the right, he said finally, then handed me a white envelope. Give this to the security guys. I pulled in where Thomas told me to, and leaned out of my car to offer the envelope to the guard in the little kiosk at the entrance of the parking lot. A squeaky, bubbling growl erupted from directly below my seat. I flinched. What the hell was that? Thomas said. I pulled up to the guard kiosk and stopped. I reached for my magical senses and extended them toward the source of the continuing growl. Crap. I think it's one of the... A sort of greasy, nauseating cold flooded over my perceptions, stealing my breath. A ghostly, charnel house scent came with it, the smell of old blood and rotting meat. I froze, looking up at the source of the sensation. The person I'd taken to be a security guard was a vampire of the Black Court. It had been a young man, 
Its features looked familiar, but desiccation had left its face too gaunt for me to be sure. The vampire wasn't tall. Death had withered it into an emaciated caricature of a human being. Its eyes were covered with a white, roomy film, and flakes of dead flesh fell from its decay-drawn lips and clung to its yellowed teeth. Hair like brittle, dead grass stood out from its head, and there was some kind of moss or mold growing in it. It snatched at me with inhuman speed, but my wizard senses had given me enough warning to keep its skeletal fingers from closing on my wrist, just barely. The vampire caught a bit of my duster's leather sleeve with the tips of its fingers. I jerked my arm back, but the vampire had as much strength in its fingertips as I did in my whole upper body. I had to pull hard, twisting with my shoulders to break free. I choked out a shout, and the sudden rush of fear made it high and thready. The vampire rushed me, slithering out through the guardhouse window like a freeze-dried snake. I had a panicked instant to realize that if the vampire closed to wrestling range with me inside the car, they'd be harvesting my organs out of a mound of scrap metal and spare parts. And I wasn't strong enough to stop it from happening. Chapter 3 Thomas's senses evidently didn't compete with mine because the black court vampire was up to its shoulders in the beetle before he choked out a startled, Holy crap! I threw my left elbow at the vampire's face. I couldn't hurt the creature, but it might buy me a second to act. I connected, snapping its head to one side, and with my other hand I reached into a box on the floor between the seats right by the stick and withdrew the weapon that might keep me from getting torn to shreds. The vampire tore at me with its near-skeletal hands, its nails digging like claws. If I hadn't laid those spells on my duster, it would have shoved its hand into my chest and torn out my heart, but the heavy, spell-reinforced leather held out for a second or two, buying me enough time to counterattack. The vampires of the Black Court had been around since the dawn of human memory. They had acres of funky vampire powers right out of Stoker's book. They had the weaknesses, too. Garlic, tokens of faith, sunlight, running water, fire, decapitation. Bram Stoker's book told everyone how to kill them, and the blacks had been all but exterminated in the early 20th century. The vampires who survived were the most intelligent, the swiftest, the most ruthless of their kind, with centuries of experience in matters of life and death. Mostly death. But even with centuries of experience, I doubted any of them had ever been hit with a water balloon. Or with a holy water balloon, either. I kept three of them in the box in my car, in easy reach. I snatched one up, palmed it, and slammed it hard against the vampire's face. The balloon broke, and the blessed water splattered over its head. Wherever it struck the vampire, there was a flash of silver light, and the dead flesh burst into white, heatless flame as bright as a magnesium flare. The vampire let out a dusty, rasping scream and convulsed in instant agony. It began thrashing around like a half-squashed bug. It slammed a flailing arm into my steering wheel, and the metal bent with a groan. Thomas! I snarled. Help me! He was already moving. He tore his seatbelt off, drew up his knees, and spun to his left. Thomas let out a shout and drove both feet hard into the vampire's face. 
Thomas couldn't have matched the Black Court vampire's physical power, but he was still damn strong. A double kick threw the vampire out of the car and through the flimsy wooden wall of the guard kiosk outside. The squeaky growling turned into ferocious little barks while the vampire struggled weakly. It tried to rise, its white-filmed eyes wide. I could see the damage the holy water had inflicted. Maybe a quarter of its head was simply gone, starting above its left ear and running down to the corner of its mouth. The edges of the holy water burns glowed with faint golden fire. Viscous globs of gelatinous black fluid oozed forth from the wounds. I picked up another water balloon and lifted my arm to throw it. The vampire let out a hissing shriek of rage and terror. Then it turned and darted away, smashing through the back wall of the kiosk without slowing down. It fled down the street. He's getting away, Thomas said, and started getting out of the car. Don't, I snapped over all the barking. It's a setup, Thomas hesitated. How do you know? I recognize that guy, I said. He was at Bianca's masquerade, only he was alive back then. Thomas somehow grew even paler. One of the people that creepy black court bitch turned? The one dressed like Hamlet's shrink? Her name is Mavra, and yeah. Crap, he muttered. You're right, it's a lure. She's probably hiding out there watching us right now, waiting for us to go running down a dark alley. I tried the steering wheel. It felt a little stiff, but it still functioned. Hail the mighty blue beetle. I found a parking space and pulled into it. The puppy's barks became ferocious growls again. Mavra wouldn't need a dark alley. She's got some serious talent for veils. She could be sitting on the hood and we might not see her. Thomas licked his lips, keeping his eyes on the parking lot. You think she's come to town for you? Sure, why not? I cheated her out of destroying the sword Amarachius, and she was an ally of Bianca's up until I killed her. Plus, we're at war. I'm surprised she hasn't shown up before now. Christ on a crutch. She spooks the hell out of me. Me too. I bent over and reached beneath the driver's seat. I felt a fuzzy tail, grabbed it, and drew the puppy out as gently as I could. It was the insane little notch-eared pup. He ignored me, still growling, and started shaking his head back and forth violently. Good thing we had a stowaway. Vamp might have gotten us both. What's that he's got in his mouth? Thomas asked. The puppy lost hold of whatever he was savaging, and it landed on the floor of the beetle. Ugh, I said. It's that vamp's ear. Holy water must have burned it right off. Thomas glanced down at the ear and turned a bit green. It's moving. The puppy snarled and batted at the wriggling bit of rotted ear. I picked it up as lightly as I could and tossed it out. The gray and black puppy was evidently satisfied with that course of action. He sat down and opened his mouth in a doggy grin. Nice reflexes, Harry, Thomas said. When that vamp came at you, real nice, faster than mine. How the hell did you manage that? I didn't. I was trying to feel out this little nuisance after he started growling. I felt the vamp coming a couple of seconds before it jumped me. Wow, Thomas said. Talk about strokes of luck. Yeah, it's sort of a first for me. The pup abruptly spun, facing the direction the vampire had fled. 
He growled again. Thomas went rigid. Hey, Harry, you know what? No, what? I'm thinking we should get indoors. I picked up the puppy and scanned the darkness, but saw nothing. Discretion is the better part of not getting exsanguinated, I said. Let's go. Chapter 4 Thomas and I went into the apartment building and found the guard, who should have been in the booth, outside drinking a cup of coffee with a second man behind a desk. We took the elevator to the top floor. There were only two doors in the hall, and Thomas knocked on the nearest. Music rolled and thumped inside while we waited, and the spotless carpet had been cleaned with something that smelled like snapdragons. Thomas had to knock twice more before the door finally opened. A pretty woman, somewhere around her mid-forties, answered Thomas's knock, and a tide of loud music came with her. She was maybe five foot six, and had her dark brown hair held up with a couple of chopsticks. She held a pile of discarded paper plates in one hand, and a couple of empty plastic cups in the other, and wore an emerald knee-length knit dress that showed off the curves of a World War II pin-up girl. Her face lit with an immediate smile. Thomas, how wonderful to see you. Justine said you'd be coming by. Thomas stepped forward with his own brilliant smile and kissed the woman on either cheek. Madge, he said, you look great. What are you doing here? It's my apartment, Madge replied, her tone dry. Thomas laughed. You're kidding me. Why? The old fool talked me into investing in his company. I need to make sure he doesn't throw the money away. I'm keeping an eye on him. I see, Thomas said. Did he finally talk you into acting? Thomas put a hand on his chest. A modest schoolboy like me, I blush to think. Madge laughed, a touch of wickedness to it, resting her hand lightly on Thomas's biceps, as she did. Either she liked speaking to Thomas, or the hallway was colder than I thought. Who is your friend? Madge Shelley, this is Harry Dresden. I brought him to talk business with Arturo. Harry's a friend of mine. I wouldn't go that far. I smiled a bit and offered my hand. She fumbled with plates and cups for a moment and then laughed. I'll have to give you a rain check. Are you an actor? Madge asked, her expression speculative. To be or not to be, I said. How now, brown cow? She smiled and nodded at the puppy who was riding in the curl of my left arm. And who is your friend? He's the dog with no name, like Clint Eastwood, but fuzzier. She laughed again and said to Thomas, I see why you like him. He's mildly amusing, Thomas agreed. He's up past his bedtime, I said. Don't mean to be rude, but I need to talk to Arturo before I fall asleep on my feet. I understand, Madge said. The music's a little loud in the living room. Thomas, why don't I show you both to the study, and I'll bring Arturo to you. Is Justine here? Thomas asked. His voice held a note of quiet tension to it that I doubted Madge noticed. Somewhere, she said vaguely. I'll tell her you've arrived. Thank you. We followed Madge inside the apartment suite. The living room was fairly dim, but I saw maybe twenty people there. Men and women, some of them dancing, others standing and drinking or laughing or talking like most parties. There was a haze of smoke, 
and only some of it was from cigarettes. Colored lights shifted and changed in time with the music. I watched Thomas as we walked through the room. His manner changed subtly, something I could sense without being able to define. He didn't move any more quickly, but his steps became more fluid somehow. He looked around the room as we went through, his eyelids a little heavy, and he started drawing the eyes of every woman we walked past. I drew no such looks, even with the gray puppy sleeping in the crook of my arm. It's not like I'm Quasimodo or anything, but with Thomas walking through the room like a predator angel, it was tough to compete. Madge led us past the party room and into a small room with bookshelves and a desk with a computer. Have a seat and I'll go find him, she said. Thank you, I said, and settled down onto the chair at the desk. She left, her eyes lingering on Thomas for a moment before she did. He perched on a corner of the desk, his expression pensive. You look thoughtful, I said, which seems wrong somehow. What is it? I'm hungry, Thomas said, and thinking. Madge is Arturo's first ex-wife. And she's hosting a party for him? I asked. Yeah, I never thought she liked the guy much. What did she mean about investing? Thomas shrugged. Arturo broke off from a larger studio on the West Coast to found his own. Madge is real practical. She's the kind of person who could despise someone while still being professional and working with him, acknowledging his talents. If she thought it was a winning bet, she wouldn't be worried that she didn't like the person in charge. It wouldn't be out of character for her to have invested money in Arturo's new company. What kind of money are we talking about? Not sure, Thomas said. Seven figures, maybe more. I'd have to get someone to look. I whistled. A lot of money. I guess, Thomas said. Thomas was rich enough that he probably didn't have much perspective on the value of a buck. I started to ask him more questions, but the door opened and a tall and vigorous man in his fifties entered, wearing dark slacks and a gray silk shirt rolled up over his forearms. He had a head of magnificent silver locks framing a strong face with a dark, short beard. He had a boater's tan, pale smile lines at the corners of his eyes and mouth, and large, intelligent, dark eyes. Tommy, the man boomed and strode to Thomas. Hey, I was hoping I would see you tonight. His voice had a thick accent, definitely Greek. He clapped both hands on Thomas's shoulders and kissed him on either cheek. You're looking good, Tommy boy, real good. You should come work with me, huh? I don't look good on camera, Thomas said. But it's good to see you, too. Arturo Genocha, this is Harry Dresden, the man I told you about. Arturo looked me up and down. Tall son of a bitch, huh? I ate my Wheaties, I said. Hey, pooch, Arturo said. He scratched the gray puppy behind the ear. The little dog yawned, licked Arturo's hand once, and promptly went back to sleep. Your dog? Temporarily, I said. Recovered him for a client. Arturo nodded, his expression calculating. You know what a strega is, Mr. Dresden? Practitioner of Italian folk magic, I responded. Divinations, love potions, fertility blessings, and protections. They also can manage a pretty vicious set of curses with a technique they call the malocchio. 
the evil eye. His eyebrows lifted in surprise. Guess you know a thing or two, huh? Just enough to get me into trouble, I said. But do you believe in it? In the evil eye? Yes. I've seen stranger things. Arturo nodded. Tommy boy tell you what I need? He said you were worried about a curse. Said some people close to you died. Arturo's expression flickered for a second, and I saw grief undermine his confidence. Yes. Two women. Good souls, both. Uh-huh, I said. Assuming there is a curse involved, what makes you think it was meant for you? They had no other contact with each other, Arturo said. Far as I know, I was the only thing they had in common. He opened a drawer in his desk and drew out a couple of manila file folders. Reports, he said. Information about their deaths. Tommy says maybe you can help. Maybe, I agreed. Why would someone curse you? This studio, Arturo said. Someone wants to stop the company from getting off the ground. Kill it before the first picture gets made. What do you want me to do? Protection, Arturo said. I want you to protect the people on my crew during the shoot. Don't want anything else to happen to anyone. I frowned. Can be a tough job. Do you know who would want to stop production? Arturo scowled at me and stalked across the room to a cabinet. He opened it and withdrew an already opened bottle of wine. He pulled out the cork with his teeth and took a swig. If I knew that, I wouldn't need to hire an investigator. I shrugged. I'm a wizard, not a fortune teller. Got any guesses? Anyone who might want to see you fail? Lucille, Thomas said. Arturo glanced at Thomas, scowling. Who is Lucille? I asked. My second ex-wife, Arturo answered. Lucille de la Rosa, but she's not involved. How do you know? I asked. She would not, he said. I am certain. Why? He shook his head and stared down at his wine bottle. Lucille, well, let us say that I did not marry her for her mind. You don't have to be smart to be hostile, I said, though I couldn't really think of the last time someone stupid had pulled off powerful magic. Anyone else? Is there another ex-wife around? Arturo waved a hand. Trisha would not try to stop the picture. Why not? I asked. She is the star. Thomas made a choking sound. Christ, Arturo! The silver-maned man grimaced. No choice. She had a standing contract. Could have killed me in court if I did not cast her. Is there an ex-wife number four? I asked. I can keep track of three. If there's four, I have to start writing things down. Not yet, Arturo muttered. I am single. So far, just the three. Well, that's something, I said. Look, unless whoever is bringing this curse onto you does something right in front of me, there's not a lot I can do. We call a spell like the evil eye an entropy curse, and it's damn near impossible to trace any other way. My people must be protected from the Malocchio, Arturo said. Can you do that? If I'm there when it goes down, yes. How much does that cost? he asked.
Seventy-five an hour plus expenses, a thousand up front. Arturo didn't hesitate. Done. We start shooting in the morning, nine o'clock. I'll have to be close, within sight, if possible, I said. And the less anyone knows about it, the better. Yeah, Thomas agreed. He'll need a cover story. If he stands around in the open, the bad guy will just wait until he leaves or goes to the bathroom or something. Arturo nodded. He can boom for me. Boom, I asked. Boom microphone, Thomas supplied. Oh, uh, that isn't such a hot idea, I said. My magic doesn't get on so well with machines and such. Arturo's face clouded with annoyance. Fine. Production assistant. Something in his pants made a chirping sound, and he drew a cell phone from his pocket. He held up a hand to me and stepped over to the other side of the room, speaking in low tones. Production assistant? What's that? I asked. Gopher, Thomas said. Errand boy. He stood up, his movements restless. There was a knock at the door, and it opened to admit a girl who may not have reached drinking age. She had dark hair, dark eyes, and was a little taller than average. She wore a white sweater with a short black skirt that showed off a lot of leg, and even compared to the pretty people outside, she was a knockout. Of course, the last time I'd seen her, she'd been naked except for a red Christmas present-type bow, so it was possible that I was biased. Justine, Thomas said, and there was the kind of relief in his voice that I would usually have associated with historical sailors shouting, Land ho! He took a step over to the girl and pulled her to him in a kiss. Justine's cheeks colored, and she let out a breathless little laugh before her lips touched his and then melted into the kiss like there wasn't anything else in the whole world. The puppy in the curl of my arm vibrated, and I glanced down to see him staring at Thomas, an inaudible, disapproving growl shaking his fuzzy chest. They didn't kiss for a long time, really, but when Thomas finally lifted his mouth from hers, she was flushed, and I could see the pulse beating in her throat. Nothing remotely like thought or restraint touched her face. The heat in her eyes could have scorched me if I'd been a little closer, and for a second I thought she was about to drag Thomas to the carpet right there in front of me. Instead, Thomas turned her so that she stood with her back to his chest and drew her against him, pinning her there with his arms. He looked paler, and his eyes had become an even fainter shade of gray. He rested his cheek on her hair for a moment and then said, You've met Harry? Justine regarded me with heavy, sultry eyes and nodded, Hello, Mr. Dresden. She inhaled through her nose and made a visible effort to draw her thoughts together. You're cold, she said to Thomas. What happened? Nothing, Thomas said, his tone light. Justine tilted her head and then took a tiny step away from him. Thomas blinked at her, but didn't try to keep her there. Not nothing, she said. She touched his cheek with her fingers. You're freezing. I don't want you to worry about it, Thomas told her. Justine looked over her shoulder at me. I checked on Arturo, who was still in his conversation on the phone, then said in a low voice, Black Court. I think it was one of Mavra's goons. Justine's eyes widened. Oh, God, was anyone hurt? 
Only the vampire, I said. I gave the puppy, now silent, a vague wave. The pup saw him coming. Thomas, Justine said, looking back at him. You told me you didn't have to worry about Mavra. In the first place, we don't know it's Mavra, Thomas said. He gave me a look over Justine's head that warned me to shut the hell up. And in the second place, they were after Dresden. He's here under my invitation, so I helped him out a little. Boot to the head, I agreed. Ran him off. My God, I'm glad you're all right, Mr. Dresden, but this shouldn't have happened. Thomas, we shouldn't even be in town. If you don't... Thomas put a finger under Justine's chin and drew her eyes up to his. Justine shuddered, her lips faltering to a halt, her mouth partly open. Her pupils dilated until there was practically no color showing around them. She swayed a little on her feet. Relax, Thomas said. I'll take care of things. Her brow furrowed with a tiny line, and she stammered, But I don't want you to get hurt. Thomas's eyes glittered. Deliberately, he raised one pale hand and touched a fingertip to the pulse in Justine's throat. Then he drew it down in a slow, lazy spiral that stopped half an inch under her collarbone. She shuddered again, and her eyes slipped entirely out of focus. Whatever thought had been in her head, it died a silent little death and left her swaying on her feet, making soft, mindless sounds between quick breaths. And she loved it. From the looks of things, she didn't have a choice. The puppy's silent growl buzzed against the skin of my arm. Anger flashed through me in a wave of silent outrage. Stop it, I said in a quiet voice. Get out of her head. This doesn't concern you, Thomas replied. Like hell it doesn't. Back off on the mind mojo right now, or you and I are going to have words. Thomas's gaze moved to me. Something vicious in his eyes flashed with a cold fury, and one of his hands closed into a fist. Then he shook his head and closed his eyes for a moment. He spoke before they opened. The less she knows about the details, he said in a rough, strained voice, the safer she's going to be. From who? I demanded. From anyone who might not like me or my house, Thomas said. The words were laced with a hint of a feral snarl. If she doesn't know any more than any other doe, there's no reason to target her. It's one of the only things I can do to protect her. Back off, wizard, or I'll be happy to start the conversation myself. Just then, Arturo finished his call and turned back to us. He blinked and stopped short of conversation distance. I'm sorry? Did I miss something? Thomas arched an eyebrow at me. I took a deep breath and said, No, we just stumbled onto an uncomfortable topic, but we can put a lid on it until later. Good, Arturo said. Now, where were we? I need to take Justine home, Thomas said. She's had a little too much tonight. Best of luck, Arturo. Arturo nodded to him and managed to smile. Thank you, Tommy boy, for your help.
It's nothing. He slipped an arm around Justine, drawing her with him, and nodded to me as he left the room. Later, Harry. I rose, too, and asked Arturo, Where do you want me tomorrow? He sat down his bottle of wine, grabbed a memo pad off the desk, and scribbled down an address. Then he withdrew a roll of money, peeled off ten bills, and slapped a thousand dollars cash down on top of the address. I collected all of it. I do not know if I believe in your sincerity, Mr. Dresden, Arturo said. I waved the bills. As long as you're paying, I don't really need you to believe in me. See you in the morning, Mr. Genoza. Chapter 5 I shambled back to my place around late o'clock. Mr., the bobtailed gray tomcat who shares my apartment, hurled himself at my legs in a shoulder block of greeting. Mr. weighs twenty-five or thirty pounds, and I had to brace myself against his ritual affection. Mr. tilted his head at me and sniffed at the air. Then he made a low, warning sound of his imperial displeasure. As I came in, he bounded up onto the nearest bit of furniture and peered at the puppy, still sleeping in my arm. Temporary, I assured him. I sat down on the couch. He isn't staying. Mr. narrowed his eyes, prowled over to me, and swatted at the puppy with an indignant paw. Take it easy. This little lunatic is a featherweight. I murmured a minor spell and lit a few candles around my apartment with my will. I dialed the number where I had been contacting Brother Wang while he was in town, but got only a recording telling me the number had been disconnected. The phones are occasionally wacky when it's me using them, so I tried again. No success. Bah. My bones ached and I wanted to rest, safe and cozy in my lair. Said lair was in the basement of a creaky old boarding house built better than a hundred years ago. It had sunken windows high up on its walls and largely consisted of a single living area around a fireplace. I had old, comfortable furniture, a sofa, a love seat, a couple of big recliner-type chairs, they didn't match, but they looked soft and inviting. A stone floor was covered with a variety of area rugs, and I'd softened the look of the concrete walls with a number of tapestries and framed pictures. The whole place was sparkling clean, and the air smelled of pine boughs. Even the fireplace was scoured down to a clean stone surface. You can't beat the fair folk as housekeepers. You also can't tell people about them, because they'll pack up and clear out. Why? I have no idea. They're fairies, and that's just how it works. On one side of the living room, there was a shallow alcove with a wood-burning stove, an old-fashioned icebox, and some cabinets that held my cooking ware and groceries. On the other, a narrow doorway led to my bedroom and bath. There was barely enough room for my twin bed and a second-hand dresser. I pulled up the rug that covered the entrance to the sub-basement, a trapdoor set into the floor. It was deep enough underground to keep a subterranean chill the year round, so I juggled the puppy while putting on a heavy flannel robe. Then I got a candle, opened the trapdoor, and descended the folding stepladder into my laboratory. I had forbidden the cleaning service to move around my lab, and as a result it had been slowly losing the war against entropy for a couple of years. The walls were lined with wire racks, and I'd filled them with Tupperware, 
boxes, bags, tubs, bottles, cups, bowls, and urns. Most of the containers had a label listing their contents, ingredients for any number of potions, spells, summonings, and magical devices I had occasion to make from time to time. A work table ran down the middle of the room, and at its far end was a comparatively recent concrete patch that did not match the rest of the floor. The patch was surrounded by the summoning circle set into the stone. I'd splurged on replacing the old ring with a new one made of silver, and I'd moved everything in the room as far from it as I could. The thing I'd locked up under the circle had been quiet since the night I had sealed it into a spirit prison, but when it came to entombing a fallen angel, I was pretty sure that there was no such thing as too much caution. Bob, I said as I lit some more candles, get up. One shelf didn't match the rest of the room. Two simple metal struts held up a plain wooden plank. Mounds of old candle wax spread in multicolored lumps at either end of the board, and in the middle rested a human skull. The skull shivered a little, teeth rattling, and then a dim glow of orange light appeared in its empty eye sockets. Bob the Skull wasn't really a skull. He was an air spirit, a being with a great deal of knowledge and centuries of magical experience. Since I'd stolen him from Justin de Morn, my own personal childhood Darth Vader, Bob's knowledge and skills had let me save lives. Mostly my own, maybe, but a lot of other lives, too. How did it go? Bob asked. I started rummaging through the various and sundry. Three of the little bastards slipped through that paralysis charm you were so sure of, I said. I barely got out in one piece. You're so cute when you whine, Bob said. I'd almost think that... Holy cats, Harry! Huh? You stole one of the temple dogs? I petted the puppy's fur and felt a little offended. It wasn't anything I meant to happen. He was a stowaway. Wow, Bob said. What are you going to do with him? Not sure yet, I said. Brother Wang's already gone. I tried to call his contact number just now, but it was out of service. I can't call up a messenger and send it back to the temple, because that entire area of mountains is warded, and a letter might take months to get through, if it gets through at all. I finally found a big enough box, scrounged around a bit more, and dropped a couple of old flannel bathrobes into it, followed by the exhausted puppy. Besides, I've got better things to worry about. Like what? Like the Black Court. Mavra and her... her... Hey, what's the term for a group of Black Court vampires? A gaggle? A passel? A scourge, Bob said. Right. Looks like Mavra and her scourge are in town. One of them came pretty close to punching my ticket tonight. Bob's eyelights flickered with interest. Neat. So the usual drill? Wait for them to try again so you can backtrack the attackers to Mavra? Not this time. I'm going to find them first, kick down their door, and kill them all in their sleep. Wow, that's an atypically vicious plan, Harry. Yeah, I liked it too. I put the puppy's box on the table. I want you to take Mister out on the town in the morning. Find wherever it is Mavra is holding up during the day, and for the love of Pete, don't step on any more warding spells. Bob somehow gave the impression that he shivered. Yeah, I've been a lot more careful. But the vampires aren't stupid, Harry. 
They know they're helpless during daylight. They'll have taken some measures to protect their refuge. They always do. I'll take care of it, I said. It might be more than you can handle alone. That's why I'm going Justice League on them, I said, fighting a yawn. I put the cardboard box with the puppy on the work table, picked up my candle, and went to the stepladder. Hey, where do you think you're going? Bob asked. Bed. Early day tomorrow. New case. And the temple dog is staying here. Why? Because I don't want to leave him all by his lonesome, I said. If I take him with me, I think Mister would eat him after I went to sleep. Damn it, Harry, I'm a voyeur, not a veterinarian. I scowled. I need shut-eye. And I get to babysit the dog? Yeah. My job sucks. Form a union, I said heartlessly. What's the new case? Bob asked. I told him. Arturo Genosa? Bob asked. The Arturo Genosa? The movie producer? I lifted my eyebrows. Yeah, I guess. You've heard of him? Heard of him? Heck yeah, he's the best there is. My intuition piped up again, and I felt something in my insides drop. Uh, what kind of movies? Critically acclaimed erotic features, Bob said, fairly bubbling with enthusiasm. I blinked. There are erotic film critics? Sure, Bob bubbled. All kinds of periodicals. Like what? Chugs, hooters, funky buns, busting out. I rubbed at my eyes. Bob, those are porno magazines, not trade journals. Four stars, four bonus. What's the difference? Bob asked. I wasn't going to touch that one. The skull sighed. Harry, I'm not trying to call you stupid or belabor the obvious, but you did get hired by a vampire of the White Court, an incubus. What kind of job did you think this was going to be? I glowered at Bob. He was right. I should have known it wasn't going to be simple. Speaking of, I said, how much do you know about the White Court? Oh, the usual, Bob said, which meant he knew plenty. I saw Thomas get real weird tonight, I said. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but Justine was there, and she said that he was freezing and that it worried her. Then he hit her with some kind of mind magic hypnosis whammy and zoned her out entirely. He was hungry, Bob said. I mean capital H kind of hungry. The hunger is a kind of... I don't know. Symbiotic spirit inside a white court vamp. They're born with it. Ah, I said. That's where they get the strength and powers and stuff. Among them, nigh immortality, Bob said. But it don't happen for free. That's why they do the whole feeding thing. The hunger needs it to survive. I got it. I got it, I said through a yawn. They use their powers and it makes the spirit hungry, so they have to feed. I frowned. What happens if they don't feed? Short term, moodiness, anger, violent behavior, paranoia. In the long term, they'll use up whatever reservoir of life energy they have. Once that happens, the hunger pretty much takes over and makes them hunt. If they can't hunt, they go insane. What about the people they feed on? I asked. What about them? Bob said. They get little pieces of their life nibbled away. It does a form of spiritual damage, like when the nightmare mauled Mickey Malone. 
It leaves them vulnerable to the whites' mental allure and control, so it's easy for the whites to come by for another bite. What happens if they keep getting fed on? It's fed upon, O oh Bard. And if it keeps up, the mortal burns out early, sort of fades away into a kind of mindless daze. Heart attack during an intense feeding usually kills them. Killer sex, I said, literally. To die for, Bob confirmed. An eerie thought, and one that disturbed me a lot more than I thought it should. What if the vamp doesn't want to feed on someone? Want doesn't matter, Bob said. They feed on pure reflex. It's what they are. So if they stay with someone, I said, eventually they kill them. Sooner or later, Bob said. Always. I shook my head. I'll remember that, I said. Tough to keep up the paranoia around Thomas. He's... Well, hell. If he was human, I might not mind buying him a beer once in a while. Bob's tone turned serious. He might be a great guy, Harry. But it doesn't change the fact that he isn't always in control of his power or his hunger. I doubt he can stop himself from entrancing that pretty girl of his, or from feeding upon her. Bob paused. Not that he'd really want to. I mean, she's hot. Who wouldn't want a little nibble of Justine now and then, am I right? Focus, I growled. Just find Mavra's hiding place. I'll be back from the job before sundown if I can. Bob sighed dreamily. Some guys get all the luck. Genosa always cast the prettiest girls. Lots and lots of pretty girls. I'm going to be prowling the mean streets looking for hideous creatures of the night, and you're going to be standing right there next to the most beautiful women in erotica, getting to watch everything going on, big as life. I felt my face flood into a feverish blush. Keep an eye on the dog. You have my permission to take Mr. on the town after the sun rises. Be back by sundown. Will do, Bob said. Harry, Harry, Harry. What I wouldn't give to be in your shoes this week. Which, in retrospect, just goes to show that a pretty face can inspire even a bodiless spirit of intellect to dizzying heights of idiocy. Chapter 6 My cat walked on my face just after dawn. My body thought I should have been getting a couple more hours of shut-eye, at the least. Instead, I shambled to the door to let Mr. outside. Before the cat left, he bobbed his head at me, and his eyes glittered with nearly invisible flickers of orange light. Bob had taken temporary possession of Mr.'s body. Actually, I suspected that Mr. tolerated Bob's control only because he got to go see new things when I sent Bob out on a mission. Bob was a being of spirit and was too fragile to go drifting around in sunlight. It could burn his usual form to vapor in a few seconds. The spirit needed some form of protection during full daylight, and Mr. was it. I had my usual flash of concern and mumbled, Be careful with my cat. The cat rolled his eyes and gave me a contemptuous-sounding feline growl. Then Mr. hurled himself against my legs in a gesture that had nothing to do with Bob, before bounding up the steps and out of sight. 
I showered, got dressed, and got enough of a fire going in my kitchen stove to scramble some eggs and toast some bread. There was a scratching sound from the open trapdoor to my lab. Then I heard a series of thumps. A moment later, the scratching came again, and I peered down the stepladder. The little gray puppy had escaped the box and was attempting to climb the stepladder. He made it up five or six steps, slipped, and thumped back down to the stone floor at the bottom of the ladder, evidently for at least the second time. He didn't whimper when he fell. He just sprawled, wiggled to get his paws back under him, then started up the stepladder again full of, well, dogged determination. Hell's bells, dog. You're insane. Did you know that? Certifiable. The puppy climbed to the next step and paused to look at me, mouth dropping open in a doggy grin. He wagged his tail so hard he nearly fell off again. I went down and scooped him up, put him on the love seat, and sat down with him to eat breakfast. I shared and made sure he got a bit of water to drink. Just because I wasn't keeping him didn't excuse me from showing a guest some measure of hospitality, even if the guest was fuzzy. While I ate, I mapped out my plan for the day. I'd have to spend most of the day at Genosa's studio if I was going to be able to protect anyone from incoming curses. But ultimately, that was a losing strategy. Sooner or later, I would be in the wrong place, or else the curse might come in too hard or fast for me to stop. The smart plan was to find out where these curses were coming from. Someone had to be sending them. What I really had to do was find that person and push their face in a little. Problem solved. What's more, I was pretty confident that whoever was behind these curses was close to Genosa's social circle. While not as invasive or vicious as magic that directly attacked a person's physical body, this curse was still plenty potent. For magic to work, you have to believe in it. Really believe. Without any doubts or reservations. It isn't all that common for someone to have that much conviction directed toward murderous ends. It's even less common to have that kind of rancor for a complete stranger. All of which meant that the killer was probably someone close to Genosa's crowd, or in it. Which meant that there was at least a chance that I would come face to face with the killer at work today. Best pack for trouble. Speaking of which... I wouldn't have to worry much about the black court making a move on me in daylight, but it didn't mean I could afford to let my guard down for long. Vampires had a general habit of recruiting surrogate thugs for wet work in broad daylight, and a bullet between the eyes would kill me just as well as some vampire ripping my lower jaw off. In fact, it would be a lot better, because then the vamp could order the flunky to give himself up or suicide, and the mortal authorities who might otherwise cause trouble would become a non-issue. I was better than most at maintaining a high alert, but even so, I couldn't be sharp on my guard forever. I'd get tired, bored, make mistakes. To say nothing of how grumpy it would make me, generally speaking, the longer I waited to solve the vampire problem, the more likely I'd be to get dead. So I had to move fast. Which meant that I'd need to round up some help fast. It took me about ten seconds to figure out who I wanted to call, I even had time enough to go see one of them before work. We finished breakfast, and I let the puppy handle the pre-wash. I got out my Rolodex, got on the phone, and left two messages with two answering machines. Then I pulled on my heavy black mantled duster, dropped the pup into one of its huge pockets, 
fetched my staff and rod along with a backpack full of various gadgets for on-the-fly spell work, and went out to face the day. My first destination, Doe Joe's Hurricane Gym, resided on the first floor of an old office building not far from the headquarters of Chicago PD. The place had once been a tragically, if predictably, short-lived country and western bar. When Joe moved in, he tore down every wall that wasn't a load-bearing section, ripped out the cheap ceiling tiles, peeled the floor down to smooth, naked concrete, and installed a lot of lights. To my right lay a couple of bathrooms, large enough to do double duty as locker rooms. A large square of safety carpet boasted about thirty well-used pieces of weight training equipment and several racks of weights and dumbbells that made my muscles ache just looking at them. In front of me was an honest-to-goodness boxing ring, though it wasn't raised. On the other side of the ring, a raised platform boasted a long row of boxing targets— heavy bags, speed bags, and a couple of flicker bags that I could rarely hit more than once in a row. The last area was covered with a thick impact mat and was the largest in the gym. Several people in judo pajamas were already working through various grappling techniques. I recognized most of the pajama people on site as members of Chicago's finest. One of the men, a large and brawny rookie, let out a sharp shout, and then he and another man closed in to attack a single opponent. They were quick and worked well together. If it had been anyone but Murphy up against them, they probably would have been successful. Lieutenant Karen Murphy, the woman in charge of the Special Investigations Division of Chicago PD, stood an even five feet. Her blonde hair had been tied back into a tail, and she wore white pajamas with a faded belt that was more gray than black. She was attractive in a pleasantly wholesome kind of way. Crystal blue eyes, clear skin, an upturned nose. And she'd been a student of Aikido since she was eleven. The brawny rookie underestimated her speed, and she had slipped aside from his kick before he realized his mistake. She caught him by an ankle, twisted with her whole frame, and sent him stumbling away for a second or two, time enough for her to handle the second attacker. He struck more cautiously, and Murphy let out an abrupt shout of her own, faked a jab, and drove a front kick into his belt. It wasn't at full strength, and he'd taken the blow correctly, but he fell back a couple of steps, hands lifted in acknowledgment. If Murphy had been in earnest, she'd have put him down, hard. The rookie came back in, but he hadn't really gotten up to speed. Murphy blocked a jab and a slow reverse punch, got the rookie by the wrist and sent him smashing down on the impact mat, one hand twisted to the breaking point and held firm at the small of his back. The rookie grimaced and slapped the mat three times. Murphy released him. Hey, Stallings, she said, loudly enough to be heard by the whole gym. What just happened here? The older opponent grinned and said, O'Toole just got beat up by a girl, Lieutenant. There was a general round of applause and good-natured jeers from the other cops in the gym, including several calls of, Pay up! and, Told you so! O'Toole shook his head ruefully. What did I do wrong? Telegraph the kick, Murphy said. You're a moose, O'Toole. Even a light kick from you will do the job. Don't sacrifice speed to get more power. Keep it quick and simple. O'Toole nodded and walked over to an open corner of the mat with his partner. Hey, Murphy, I called. 
When are you going to stop picking on little kids and fight someone your own size? Murphy flicked her tail over her shoulder, her eyes shining. Come say that to my face, Dresden. Give me a minute to amputate my legs and I will, I responded. I took my shoes off and set them against the wall along with my duster. Murphy got a smooth wooden staff about five feet long from a rack on the wall. I took my staff into a square marked in tape on the mat, and we bowed to each other. We warmed up with a simple sequence, alternating strikes in a steady, working rhythm, wooden staves clacking solidly. Murphy didn't start pushing for more speed. Haven't seen you in almost two weeks. You flaking out on this self-defense notion? No, I said, keeping my voice down. Been on a job. Finished it up last night. I lost focus, slipped up in the sequence, and Murphy's staff banged down hard on the fingers of my left hand. Hell's bells, ow! Concentrate, wimp. Murphy gave me a second to shake my fingers, and then she started again from the beginning. You've got something on your mind. Something off the record, I said, lowering my voice. She looked around. No one was close enough to listen in. Okay. I need a thug. You available? Murphy arched a brow. You need manpower? Thug power, I said. Murphy frowned. What do you have in mind? Black Court, I said. At least two in town, probably more. Hitters? I nodded. One of them came pretty close to taking me last night. You okay? Yeah, but we have to shut these guys down and fast. They aren't gentle and fun-loving like the Reds. Meaning? Meaning that when they feed, their victims don't usually survive. They don't feed as often, but the longer they stay, the more people are going to get killed. Murphy's eyes glittered with a sudden angry fire. What's the plan? Find them. Kill them. Her brows shot up. Just like that. No formal balls? No masquerades? No clandestine meetings as preliminaries? Nah. I thought it might be nice to get the drop on the bad guys for a change. I like that plan. It's simple, I agreed. Like you, Murphy said. Just like me. When? I shook my head. As soon as I can find out where they're holed up during daylight, I can probably do it in a day or three. How's Saturday? Uh, why? She rolled her eyes. Murphy annual family reunion is this weekend. I try to be working on reunion weekend. Oh, I said. Why don't you just, you know, not show up? I need a good excuse not to show up, or my mother won't let me hear the end of it. So lie. Murphy shook her head. She'd know. She's psychic or something. I felt my eyebrows go up. Well, gee, Murph, I guess I'll just try to arrange things so that the deadly monster threat will be convenient to ducking your annual family fun fest. Your sense of priorities once more astounds me. She grimaced. Sorry, I spend time dreading this every year. Things are sort of hard between me and my mother. Family skews your sanity. I don't expect you to under... She broke off abruptly, and a little pang of hurt went through me. She didn't expect me to understand. I didn't have a mother. I didn't have a family. I never had. Even my dim memories of my father had all but vanished. I'd been only six years old when he died. God, Harry, Murph said. I, I wasn't thinking. I'm sorry. I coughed and focused on the sequence. It shouldn't be a long job, 
I find the vamps, we go in, pound in some steaks, cut some heads, toss some holy water, and we're gone. She began to speed the pace, evidently as glad as I to leave that comment unremarked. The strength of her swings made my hands buzz when her staff hit mine. You mean we get to live the cliché? she asked. Steaks and crosses and garlic? Yeah, cakewalk, Murphy snorted. Then why do you need thugs? In case they have goons. I need thug power with counter-goon capability. Murphy nodded. A few extra hands wouldn't be a bad idea. She sped up again, her staff a blur. I had to struggle to keep up. Why don't you ask the holy knight guy? No, I said. What if we need him? Michael would come in a hot second if I asked him, but I'm tired of seeing him get hurt because of me. I frowned, almost lost the rhythm, then found it again. God or someone like him does Michael's event scheduling, and I get the feeling that Michael's a lot less invincible when he isn't officially on the clock. But he's a big boy. I mean, he knows the risks. He has brains. He also has kids. Murphy faltered this time, and I hit one of her thumbs. She winced and nodded toward the rookie cop she'd humbled. O'Toole there is Mickey Malone's nephew. He'd jump through fire for you if I asked him along. God, no. No newbies on this run. A stupid mistake could be fatal. I could talk to Stallings. I shook my head. Murph, the boys in SI are a lot better at handling supernatural weirdness than the average bear. But a lot of them still don't really believe what they're dealing with. I want someone smart and tough and who won't freeze or freak out, and that's you. They're better than that. What happens to them if something goes wrong? If I make a mistake, or you do? Even if they got out in one piece, how do you think they would handle the backlash when they got back to the real world, where people don't believe in vampires, and there are bodies to explain? Murphy frowned. The same thing that would happen to me, I guess. Yeah, but you're their leader. You want to be responsible for sending them into that kind of mess? Expose them to that? Murphy looked at several of the men around the gym and grimaced. You know I don't want that, but my point is that I'm as vulnerable as they are. Maybe, but you know the score. They don't. Not really. You know enough to be careful and smart. What about the White Council? Murphy asked. Shouldn't they be willing to help you? I mean, you're one of their own. I shrugged. By and large, they don't like me. I need their help like I need a sword in the neck. She, someone actually resisted your charm and finesse. What can I say? They have no taste. Murphy nodded. So, who else are you going to get? You and one more will do for coffin patrol, I said. I know a guy who is good with vampires, and I'm going to have a driver standing by when it goes down. How many laws are you planning on breaking? None, I said, if I can help it. What if these vampires have human goons? We disable them. I'm only gunning for black court. But if you want to pull double duty as conscience officer, that's fine by me. We finished the sequence, back to step away, and bowed to each other. Murphy walked with me to the edge of the mat, frowning and mulling things over. I don't want to sidestep any laws... Vampire hunting is one thing. Going vigilante is another. Done, I said. She frowned. And I'd really, really like it if we did it on Saturday. 
I snorted. If we go early, maybe you can get laid up in the hospital or something, at least. Ha, ha, Murphy said. Do me a favor and keep an eye on missing persons for a few days. It might help tip us off to their location. I want every bit of information I can get. Gotcha, Murphy said. You want to work on some hand-to-hand? -hand? I picked up my duster. Can't. Got to be on the new job in half an hour. Harry, Aikido is a demanding discipline. If you don't practice every day, you're going to lose what you've learned. I know, I know. But it isn't like I can depend on a routine from day to day. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, Murphy said. She held my staff for me while I put on my coat and abruptly frowned as she handed it back. What? I asked her. Her mouth twisted into the shape it got when she tried to hold back laughter. Is that a puppy in your pocket or are you just glad to see me? I looked down. The puppy had woken from his nap and poked its head out of my duster's pocket and was panting happily. Oh, right. Murphy plucked the puppy out of my pocket, turned him belly up, and started rubbing his tummy. What's his name? No name. I'm not keeping him. Ah, Murphy said. Want a dog? She shook her head. They take too much attention, and I'm gone at all hours. Tell me about it. Know anyone who does? Not really. Do me a favor. Keep him for a day. Murphy blinked. Why me? Because I have to go on a new job this morning, and I haven't had time to get him settled with someone. Come on, Murph. He's friendly. He's quiet. You'll never know he's there. Just for the day. Murphy glowered at me. I'm not keeping him. I know, I know. I'm not keeping him. You just said that, Murph. Just so long as you understand that I'm not keeping him. I get it already. She nodded. Just this once, then. I'm doing paperwork at my desk today, but you'd better be there to pick him up by five. You're an angel, Murph. Thank you. She rolled her eyes and settled the pup in the curl of her arm. Yeah, yeah. What's the new job? I sighed and told her. Murphy burst out laughing. You're a pig, Dresden. I didn't know, I protested. Oink, oink, oink. I glowered at her. Don't you have some paperwork to do? Get there by five, pig. By five, I sighed. I grumbled to myself as I walked out to my car and left for my first day on the set. Chapter 7 Chicago is a business town. Entrepreneurs of every stripe duke it out ferociously in pursuit of the American dream, discarding the carcasses of fallen ventures along the way. The town is full of old business headquarters, most of them held by the long-term commercial giants. When a new business sets its sights on Second City, it's cheaper for them to settle in one of the newer industrial parks littered around the city's suburbs. They all look more or less alike, a grid of plain, blocky, readily adaptable buildings two or three stories high with no windows, no landscaping, and gravel parking lots. They look like enormous, ugly concrete bricks, but they're cheap. Arturo had acquired a short-term lease on such a building in such an industrial complex 20 minutes west of town. There were three other cars parked in its lot by the time I got there. 
I had a nylon backpack full of various magical tools I might need to ward off malevolent energies, salt, a bunch of white candles, holy water, a ring of keys, a small silver bell, and chocolate. Yeah, chocolate. Chocolate fends off all kinds of nasty stuff. And if you get hungry while warding off evil, you have a snack. It's multi-purpose equipment. One end of my carved wooden blasting rod protruded from the backpack in case I needed to make a fast draw. I was also wearing my shield bracelet, my mother's pentacle amulet, my force ring, and a new gizmo I'd been working with, a silver belt buckle carved into the shape of a standing bear. Better to have the magical arsenal and not need it than to not have it and get killed to death. I got out of the car. I had on a pair of slacks and a polo shirt, since I had no idea of what a production assistant on an adult film set was supposed to wear. The client would have to be happy with business casual. I slung the backpack over one shoulder and locked up the car. A second car pulled up as I did, a shiny green rental number, and parked next to the Blue Beetle. Two men got out. The driver was a fit-looking man, maybe in his late thirties. He was a little taller than average and had the build of someone who works out in a non-fanatic kind of way. His medium brown hair was long enough to look a little disheveled. He wore round-rimmed spectacles, a Nike t-shirt, and Levi's, and his cross-trainers probably cost him upwards of a hundred bucks. He nodded at me and said, Good morning, in a tone of genuine cheer. Hi, I responded. New guy? he asked. New guy. Cameraman? Stunt double. Cool. He grinned, pulled a designer-labeled gym bag out of the back of the rental car, and slung it over his shoulder. He approached, offering his hand. I'm Jake. I traded grips with him. His hands had the calluses of someone who worked with them, and he had a confidence that conveyed strength without attempting to crush my fingers. I liked him. Harry, I responded. The second man who got out of the rental car looked like a weightlifting commercial. He was tall and built like a statue of Hercules beneath tight leather pants and a sleeveless workout shirt. He had a high-tech tan, coal-black hair, and wasn't old enough to qualify for decent rates on his auto insurance. His face didn't match the Olympian body. His features rated on the western slope of the bell curve of physical appeal, Though, to be fair, he was staring at me with a murderous scowl, which probably biased my opinion. Who the hell are you? he growled. I the hell am Harry, I said. He pulled out his own gym bag and slammed the car door closed. You always a wise ass? No, sometimes I'm asleep. He took a pair of hard steps toward me and thrust the heel of one hand at my shoulder in a belligerent push. Classic macho jitsu. I could have done a bunch of fairly violent things in response, but I try not to get into fights in a gravel parking lot if I can help it. I took the push without yielding and grunted. Your wrist is a little limp, I said. If you like, I can show you an exercise or something, help you out. His face twisted with abrupt heat. Son of a bitch, the man swore and dropped his bag so he could ball his huge hands into huge fists. Whoa, Jake said, and stepped between us, facing the big guy. Hey, come on, Bobby. It's too early for this crap. Bobby got a lot more aggressive once Jake was there to hold him back, snarling and cussing. 
I'd face too many literal ogres to be too terribly impressed by a metaphorical one. But I was just as glad that it hadn't gone any farther. The kid was a hell of a lot stronger than me, and if he knew more than nothing about how to handle himself, he could ruin my whole day. The kid subsided after a minute, picked up his stuff again, and scowled at me. I know what you're thinking, and you can forget it. I lifted my eyebrows. So you're psychic, too? Wise-ass stunt double, he snarled. It happened once. You aren't going to make a name for yourself. You might as well just leave now. Jake sighed. Bobby, he's not a stunt double. But he said he was joking, Jake said. Christ, he's newer at this than you. Look, just go inside. Get some coffee or spring water or something. You don't need this on a shooting day. The kid glared at me and jabbed his index finger at me. I'm warning you, asshole. Stay out of my way if you don't want to get hurt. I tried to keep all the panic and terror he'd inspired off my face. Okie doke. The kid snarled, spat on the ground in my direction, and then stormed inside. Someone woke up with his testosterone in a knot today, I said. Jake watched Bobby go and nodded. He's under pressure. Try not to take it personal, man. That's tough, I said. What with the insults and violent posturing and such. Jake grimaced. Nothing to do with you personally, man. He's worried. About being replaced by a stunt double? Yeah. Are you serious? What the hell did a stunt double do in a porno flick? Jake waved a hand vaguely toward his belt. Extreme close-ups. Uh, what? Historically speaking, it doesn't happen often, especially what with Viagra now, but it isn't unknown for a director to bring in a double for the close of a scene if the actor is having trouble finishing. I blinked. He thought I was a stunt penis? Jake laughed at my reaction. Man, you are new. You've been doing this work long? A while, he said. Guess it's a dream job, huh? Gorgeous women and all? He shrugged. Not as much as you'd think. After a while, anyway. Then why do you do it? Habit? He asked with an easy grin. Plus, lack of options. I thought about doing the family thing once, but it didn't work out. He fell silent for a second. His expression touched with faint grief. He shook his head to come out of it and said, Look, don't worry about Bobby. He'll calm down once he figures out his stage name. Stage name? Yeah, I think that's what's got him all nervous. This is only his second shoot. First one is in the can, but it'll be a bit before they do final edits and such. He's got until next week to figure out his performing name. Performing name, huh? Don't make fun of it, he said, expression serious. Names have power, man. Do they? Really? Jake nodded. A good name inspires confidence. It's important for a young guy. Like Dumbo's magic feather, I said. Right, exactly. So what name do you go by, I asked. Jack Rockhart, Jake replied promptly. He eyed me for a moment, his expression assessing. What, I asked. You mean you don't recognize the name? Or me? I shrugged. I don't have a TV. Don't go to those theaters either. His eyebrows shot up. Really? Are you Amish or something? Yeah, that's it. I'm Amish. He grinned. 
Maybe you'd better come inside with me. I'll introduce you around. Thanks. No problem, Jake said. We went on into the building, a place with sterile beige walls and invincible medium-brown carpeting. Jake led me to a door with a computer-printed sign that read Green Room and went inside. A long conference table ran down the center of a comfortably-sized room. Donuts, drinks, fruits, bagels, and other foods of every description were laid out on trays down its length. The room smelled like fresh coffee, and I promptly homed in on the coffee machine for a cup. A plain-faced woman in her mid-forties entered, wearing jeans, a black tee, and a red-and-white flannel shirt. Her hair was tied back under a red bandana. She seized a paper plate and dumped food on it at random. Good morning, Guffy. Joan, Jake responded easily. Have you met Harry? Not yet. She glanced over her shoulder at me and nodded. Wow, you are very tall. I'm actually a midget. A haircut makes me look taller. Joan laughed and popped a donut hole in her mouth. You're the production assistant, huh? Yes. She nodded. So, let's produce. I thought that was Arturo's bag. He's the director and executive producer. I'm the actual producer. Makeup, cameras, lighting, sets, you name it. I handle the crew and the details. She turned to me and offered her hand, shaking off sugary donut goodness as she did. Joan Dallas. Pleasure, I said. Harry Dresden. Joan nodded. Come on, then. There's still a lot to do before we can shoot. Guffy, get to the dressing room and clean yourself up. Jake nodded. Are they here yet? Her tone of voice became annoyed. Giselle and Emma are. There was a moment of silent, pregnant tension. Jake winced and headed for the door. Harry, nice to meet you. Joan's okay, but she'll work you to death. Joan threw an apple at him. Jake caught it when it bounced off his chest, crunched into it with his teeth, and held it in his mouth so that he could wave as he left the room. Grab yourself some food, Stilts, Joan said. You can help me put cameras together. I was hoping to talk to Arturo before we got going, I said. She turned around with two plates loaded with breakfast pastries. She hadn't bothered getting any fruit. You're a funny guy. He's probably not out of bed yet. Bring that box of cookies. If my blood sugar drops too low, I might take your head off. She led me down a short hallway to a cavernous room, a shooting studio. A slightly raised stage held an unlit set, which looked like a lavishly appointed bedroom. Arrayed in a line in front of it were several black plastic crates and a freestanding shop light. Joan flicked it on and started opening crates, popping a bit of food into her mouth every third or fourth movement. Nice place, I said. Been a bitch, Joan said between bites. Last company here was supposed to be some kind of computer production deal, but they had to be lying. They redid all the wiring in here, crowded in way heavier than they were supposed to have. Took me a week to get things working, and then I had to turn their old gym into something like a dressing room. But this place still isn't up to code. You cannot change the laws of physics, I said. She laughed. Amen. Engineer, then? I asked. By way of necessity, she answered. I've done sets, lighting, power, even some plumbing. And, she said, opening boxes, cameras. Gather round, gopher boy. You can help. I settled down while she laid out parts from heavy plastic crates. She assembled them, several professional cameras and tripods, with the surety of long practice. 
She gave me instructions, as she did, and I did my best to help her out. There was a pleasant, quiet rhythm to the work, something that I hadn't really felt since the last time I'd been on a farm in Hog Hollow, Missouri. And it was interesting. Technology was unfamiliar territory for me. See, those who wield the primordial forces of creation have a long-running grudge with physics. Electronic equipment, in particular, tends to behave unpredictably, right up until it shuts down and stops working altogether. Old technologies seemed more stable, which was one reason I drove around town in a Volkswagen Beetle that had been built before the end of the Vietnam War. But newer products, video cameras, televisions, cell phones, computers, would die a horrible, fizzling death after any extended time in my presence. There was a sense of order to what we were doing that appealed to me on some level, putting parts together, locking them into place, lining up plugs into the corresponding sockets, taping groups of wires together so that they wouldn't get tangled. I did well enough that Joan sat back and watched me work on the last camera on my own. So, how's it supposed to work, I said. What happens next? The lights, she sighed. The damn lights are the most annoying part. We have to set them up so that no one looks too shiny or too wrinkly. Once that's done, I'll let the technical manager handle sound and go ride herd on the actors. Metaphorically, I hope. She snorted. <laughs> yes, some of them are decent enough, like that blockhead Guffy. But if you don't push them into getting things done, they'll never be ready for the set on time. Makeup, costume, that sort of thing. Ah, uh -huh. and some of them are late, I asked. Scrump will be, she said. It almost came out a growl. I pushed. Who? Trisha Scrump, actress. You don't like her, I asked. I despise that self-absorbed, egotistical little bitch, Joan said cheerfully. She'll play the princess, and everyone else in the cast will know that they don't have to show up on time, or be ready to go on time, or be entirely sober, since her lascivious highness Trixie Vixen will be showing up late to everything anyway, high as a kite, and doing exactly as she pleases. I long to slap her silly. You shouldn't repress your emotions like that, I said. She let out a belly laugh. Sorry. <laughs> No reason to drag a newbie into old politics. Guess I'm just upset to be working with her again. I didn't expect it. Aha. Hostility for the porn starlet. That's what we in the business call motive. Joan did not strike a creepy, murderous strega vibe with me, but I'd learned the hard way that a skilled liar can look innocent right up until she stabs you in the back. I dug for more information, like a good investigator. Why not? She shook her head. When Arturo left Silverlight Studios to start his own company, he made a lot of people angry. What do you think about that? The move, I mean. She sighed. Arturo is an idiot. He's a kind man, and he means well, but he's an idiot. Anyone who works with him now risks getting blacklisted by Silverlight. Even Trixie? I mean, if she's a big star, won't the studio kind of kowtow to her? Joan leaned down to check a connection I'd made, shoving the plug in. Are you on drugs or something? She's a big star with a limited shelf life. They'd replace her without blinking. She sounds gutsy. Joan shook her head. Don't confuse courage with stupidity. I think she's vapid enough to actually believe she's too important to lose. 
If I didn't know better, I'd say you don't like her much. Doesn't matter whether or not I like her, Joan said. It's my job to work with her. I watched her set her mouth in a firm line as she started closing cases and stacking them up. I was willing to bet that Tricia Scrump, a.k.a. Trixie Vixen, didn't have the same kind of professional resolve. I helped Joan pick up the crates and tools and stack them against the far wall of the dim studio. She moved briskly, tension and distaste simmering under the surface of her determined expression. I studied her as covertly as I could. She clearly wasn't happy to be here. Could she be gunning for Arturo with some kind of heavy-duty entropy curse? It didn't track. There hadn't been any hostility when she spoke about Arturo. And if she were a strong enough practitioner to throw out deadly spells, she wouldn't be able to keep up a career amidst so much technology. If she was harboring vengeful feelings toward Arturo, she was the best actress I'd ever seen. I suppose that could have been possible, but my instincts were sending me mixed messages. On the one hand, they told me that Joan was on the level. On the other, they also told me there was more to the woman than met the eye. Something told me that things were more serious than they appeared, that this situation was even more dangerous than I had originally believed. It bothered me. It bothered me a lot. Joan shut the last case and interrupted my train of thought. Okay, then, she said. Let's get the studio powered up. Um, I said, maybe I shouldn't be here when you do. She lifted her eyebrows, evidently waiting for an explanation. Uh, I said, I have a plate in my head. It's a little twitchy around electric fields, high-voltage equipment, that kind of thing. I'd rather come in when it's already up and running so I can back off if there's a problem. Joan stared at me with a lot of skepticism. Is that so? Yeah. She frowned. How did you get this job? Christ, I'm a terrible liar. I tried to think of an answer, and I didn't begin with, um. But I was interrupted. A surge of silent, invisible energy swept through the room, cold and foul. My stomach twisted with abrupt nausea, and my skin erupted in goose flesh. Dark. Dangerous magic swirled by, drawing my attention to the studio's exit. It was the kind of magic that destroys, warps, rots, and corrupts. The kind of magic you need to feed a deadly entropy curse. What's wrong? Joan shook me with one hand. Harry, you're shaking. Are you all right? I managed to choke out. Who else is in the building? Jake, Bobby, Emma, and Giselle. No one else. I stumbled to my pack and picked it up. If Joan hadn't helped me balance, I might have fallen down. Show me where. Joan blinked in confusion. What? I shoved the sensation of the dark magic away as best I could and snarled. They're in danger. Show me where. Now. My tone might have alarmed her, but her expression became more worried than frightened. Joan nodded and half ran out of the studio, leading me out a side door, up a flight of metal spiral stairs, and into another hallway. We sprinted down it to a room with a sign on it that said, Dressing Room. Get back, I said, and stepped in front of her. I hadn't yet touched the doorknob when a woman began to scream. Chapter 8 
I tore the door open onto a room the size of my apartment, lined with freestanding mirrors, folding tables, and chairs. A cloud of foul energies slapped me in the face. Bobby stood off to my right, his expression registering surprise and confusion. To my left stood a woman in the corner of my vision, mostly naked. I didn't stop to ogle, but ran through the room to a second door. It was partly open and swinging closed again. I slammed through it into a bathroom as big as my bedroom, which I suppose isn't all that unusual. The air was hot, humid, and smelled like fresh soap. The shower was running, its glass door broken into jagged teeth. The floor was covered in more broken glass, a little water, and a lot of blood. Two rigid, motionless bodies lay on the floor. My instincts screamed a warning, and just before I stepped into the pool of blood-stained water, I threw myself into a jump. My shins hit heavily on the counter of the sink, and I started to fall. I grabbed onto the faucet and hauled myself up. My shins hurt like hell, but I'd kept my feet off the floor. My brain caught up to my instincts, and I saw what was going on. The two people on the floor weren't motionless. They were locked into positions of rigid agony. Sparks leapt up in the back corner of the room. A heavy, high-voltage light fixture had broken loose from the ceiling and fallen, hauling exposed wiring to lie in the thin sheet of scarlet liquid on the floor. Like I said, I don't get along with technology when I'm trying to use it. But when I actually want to bust it up, I'm hell on wheels. I extended my right hand at the light fixture, snarled incoherently, and willed raw power over the electric menace like an invisible wrecking ball. The hex rippled through the air, and the live wires exploded into wild, blue arcs of electricity for maybe two seconds. And then the lights went out. In the whole damn building. Whoops. I heard a pair of gasps from whoever was on the floor, presumably Jake and someone named Giselle. I got out my pentacle amulet. What's happening? Bobby's voice sounded suspicious. Stars, what a dolt. Hey, prick, what do you think you're doing? Where are the damned emergency lights? said an annoyed female voice. A light flicked on in the dressing room, and Joan appeared at the bathroom door holding a pocket flashlight on her keychain. What's going on? Call 911, I snapped. Hurry, there's bleeding. You need a light, Joan said. Got one. I willed energy through the silver pentacle. It flickered and began to brighten with a steady blue glow that made the blood on the floor look black. Hurry, and bring all the ice you can find with you when you come back. Joan vanished from the door. She snarled. Get out of the way, you blockhead! And her footsteps retreated back down the hall. I got off the sink, splashed into the water, and knelt beside the downed people. Jake, naked from the waist up, stirred as I did. Ow, he said in a rough voice. Ow. Are you all right? I asked. He sat up, wobbling a little. Never mind. Giselle, she must have slipped in the shower. I came in to help her. I turned my attention to the girl. She was young and a little scrawny for my tastes, all long limbs and long hair. I rolled her onto her back. She had a cut running the length of her neck, curving from the base of her ear to above her collarbone. Blood shone on her skin, her mouth was partly open, and her dark eyes were glassy. Crap, I said. I seized a towel from a large shelf of them and pressed it down hard on the girl's wound.
Jake, I need you. He looked up a little blearily. Is she dead? She will be if you don't help. Hold this down hard. Keep pressure on the wound. Okay. He didn't look steady, but he clenched his jaw and did as I instructed. While I elevated her feet with a rolled towel, Jake said, I can't feel a pulse. She isn't breathing. Damn it. I tilted the girl's head back and made sure her mouth was clear. I sealed my mouth to hers and blew in hard. Then I drew back and put the heels of my hands near her sternum. I wasn't sure how hard to push. The practice dummy in the CPR class didn't have ribs to break. I guessed and hoped I got it right. Five pushes, then another breath. Five more, then another breath. The blue light from my amulet bobbed and waved about, making shadows lurch and shift. For the record, CPR is hard to do for very long. I made it for maybe six or seven minutes and was getting too dizzy to see when Jake told me to switch off with him. We swapped jobs. Joan returned with a big steel bowl of shaved ice, and I had her folded into another towel, which I then pressed down over the wound. What are you doing? Joan asked. She's cut bad. If we get her heart started, she'll bleed out, I panted. The cold will make the blood vessels constrict, slow down the bleeding. It might buy her some time. Oh, God, Joan muttered. Poor thing. I leaned down to peer at her face. The skin on the left side of her features and on her throat was covered in blotches of dark, angry red. Look, burns. From the electricity? Joan asked. Her face wasn't in the water, I said. I squinted between the girl and the shower. The water, I said. It turned hot on her. She got scalded and fell right through the damn glass. Joan flinched, as if she'd been stabbed with a knife, and her face turned gray. Oh, my God. This is my fault. I hooked up the water heater myself. Jinxed, said Bobby from the dressing room. This whole shoot is jinxed. We're screwed. Joan was holding herself steady, but tears fell from off her chin onto the naked girl. I kept pressure on the injury. I don't think this was your fault. I want you to get out front and show the paramedics in when they arrive. Her face still ashen. She rose and took off without looking back. Jake kept up the mouth-to-mouth -mouth like he knew what he was doing. I was panting and holding the towel and ice against the wound when the paramedics finally showed up, carrying heavy-duty flashlights and rolling a wheeled stretcher between them. I told them what had happened to the girl and got out of their way, taking a seat on the corner of a counter that ran along a wall of makeup mirrors. Jake joined me a minute later. Thought I felt her breathe, he panted, his tone subdued. We watched the paramedics work. God, this is really terrible. What are the odds of all that happening, you know? I frowned and closed my eyes, extending my senses into the room around me. Somewhere in the furor and panic, the choking cloud of destructive magic had dissipated. Barely a trace remained. With the crisis over and no action to occupy my mind, my hands started shaking, and I saw a few stars in the corner of my vision. A phantom surge of panic sent my heart and breathing racing. I bowed my head and rubbed at the back of my neck, waiting for it to pass. The paramedics had some big old flashlights, so I put my amulet away, letting the blue light die out. You all right? Jake asked. We'll be in a minute. I hope she'll be okay. Jake nodded, frowning. Maybe Bobby's right.
About a jinx? Maybe. He studied me for a second, expression guarded. How did you know? Know what? That we were in trouble. I mean, I thought you were in the studio. I ran in a couple of seconds after I heard her fall, and I was only a few feet away. You must have come through the door a couple of seconds after I did. How did you know? Just lucky. We finished the cameras, and Joan took me up there to introduce me or something. What was that light you had? I shrugged. Present from a friend's kid. Some kind of fancy new thing the kids have. Light up jewelry for dance clubs and keggers. They call them raves now. Raves, right. Jake watched me for a moment and then slowly nodded his head. Sorry, I'm being paranoid, I think. Been there, no problem. He nodded and slumped down tiredly. I thought I was a dead man in there. Thank you. It seemed smart to keep the wizard thing as low-key as possible. Someone was flinging some nasty energy around. No sense in advertising my identity as a wizard of the White Council. And I didn't do much but run in, I said. We're just lucky the power went out. Yeah. The paramedics stood up, loaded Giselle onto the stretcher, and picked it up. Jake and I both came to our feet as they did. Is she going to be okay? he asked. The paramedics didn't slow down, but one of them said, She's got a chance. The man nodded to me. Without the ice, she wouldn't have had that. Jake frowned and chewed on his lip, clearly upset. Take care of her. The paramedics started moving out with quick, steady steps. Sir, you better come along with us to the hospital so that the doctors can check you out. I feel fine, Jake said. The paramedics went around the corner, but the second one called back. Electricity can do some nasty damage you might not feel. Come on. But Jake stayed where he was. The paramedics took their lights with them, leaving the dressing room in darkness for a moment until Joan returned with her little flashlight. Guffy, get your bow-flexed ass into that ambulance. He looked up at his reflection in the mirrored wall. His hair was sticking up every which way. Though I apparently see the same stylist as Einstein, the Bride of Frankenstein, and Don King, I feel fine. Don't worry about me. I thought you'd say that, she said. Fine. I'll drive you there myself. Everyone else needs to leave until I can make sure the power lines aren't going to kill anyone. Bobby and Emma are already outside. Harry, be back here by three, all right? Why? I asked. To start shooting. Shooting? Jake blurted. After that? She grimaced. The show must go on. Everyone out so I can lock up. Guffy, get in my car and don't argue with me. Arturo is meeting us at the hospital. Okay, Jake said. He didn't sound like he minded agreeing. What about Bobby and Emma? They have a car? Don't think so. Jake picked up his sports bag, dug in it, and tossed me a set of keys. Here, give those to Emma for me. I caught them, and we all started out of the building. Gotcha. Joan sighed. Maybe we are jinxed. It's like someone said Macbeth. What are the odds, Jake agreed. Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. Fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. I didn't say anything to them, but I was pretty sure things would get worse before they got better. A whole lot worse. Chapter 9
We went outside. Joan and Jake spoke briefly with Bobby and the woman I presumed to be Emma. Then Joan chivied Jake into a car and drove out in a hurry, leaving the stage open for me to do some more snooping. There wasn't any time to waste with lethal magic like that on the loose, and the keys gave me a good excuse to do some more sniffing around. I didn't hold out much hope that anything in Bobby the Bully's head would be important, so I focused on the woman and walked over to them. Hey, uh, I'm Harry, production assistant. Emma, the woman said. She was actually very pretty. She had the kind of beauty that seemed to convey a sense of personal warmth, of kindness, a face best suited to smiling. Her eyes were shamrock green, her skin pale, her hair long and red, highlighted with streaks of sunny gold. She wore jeans with a black sweater and made both of them look inviting. But she wasn't smiling. She offered me her hand. I'm pleased to meet you. I'm glad you were there to help them. Anyone would have, I said. Come on, Emma, Bobby said, his expression sullen. Let's call a cab and go. She ignored him. I don't think I've seen you around before. No, I'm local. A friend introduced me to Arturo, told him I needed a job. Emma pursed her lips and nodded. He's a softy, she said. In case no one's told you, this isn't an average day on the set. I'd hope not. I'm sorry about your friend. Emma nodded. Poor Giselle. I hope she'll be all right. She's from France. Doesn't have any family. I couldn't see her from where I was standing. Was it her throat that was hurt? Yeah. Where? I mean, where was she hurt? I drew a line on my own face, starting at the back corner of my jaw and curving around to beside my Adam's apple. There, back to front. Emma shuddered visibly. God, the scars. If she lives, I doubt she'll mind them. Like hell she won't, Emma said. They'll show. No one will cast her. Could have been worse. She eyed me. You don't approve of her profession? I didn't say that. What, are you a religious type or something? No, I just... Because if you are, I'd like to tell you right now that I'm not. And I don't appreciate it when people pass judgment on my line of work. I'm not religious. I... Uh, I get so tired of hypocritical bastards who... She started to say something else, then made a visible effort and shut her mouth. I'm sorry. I'm not usually oversensitive. Sometimes I just get sick of people telling me how bad my work is for me, how it corrupts my soul, that I should abandon it and give my life to God. You're not going to believe me, I said, but I know exactly what you mean. You're right, she said. I don't believe you. Her belt chirped, and she drew a cell phone from its clip. Yes, she paused for a moment. No. No, sweetheart. Mommy already told you before I left, if Gracie says you get one cookie, then you only get one cookie. She's the boss until Mommy comes home. She listened for a moment and then sighed. I know, sweetie. I'm sorry. I'll be home soon, okay? I love you too, sweetie. Kisses. Bye-bye. Kid, I asked. She gave me half of a smile as she put the phone back onto her belt. Two. Their grandmother is with them. I frowned. Wow. I never really thought about uh, actresses with children. Not many do, she said. Does uh, 
Does their father mind your career? Her eyes flashed hotly. He isn't involved with them. Or me. Oh, I said. I offered her the keys. From Jake, for the car. Sorry if I offended you. I didn't mean to. She exhaled, and it seemed to let out the pressure of her anger. She accepted them. Not your fault. I'm tense. Everyone around here seems to be, I said. Yeah, it's this film. If it doesn't do well, we're all going to be looking for work. Why? She shrugged a shoulder. It's complicated, but we're all on contract with Silverlight. Arturo left them, but he had managed to slip something into his own contract with a studio that would let him continue hiring cast from Silverlight for three months after his departure. Oh, I said. Jake said something about another movie. She nodded. Arturo wanted to do three of them. This is the second. If the movies go over well, Arturo will have a name for himself, and we'll all have leverage to either quit the contract with Silverlight or renegotiate better terms. I see, I said. And if the movies crash, Silverlight will never pick up your contracts. Exactly, she frowned. And we've had so many problems. Now this. Come on, Emma, Bobby called. I'm starving. Let's go find something. You should start practicing some self-restraint for a change. The woman's green eyes flashed with irritated anger, but she smoothed it away from her face and said, I'll see you here this afternoon then, Harry. Nice to meet you. Likewise. She turned and glowered at Bobby as she walked to the car. They got in without speaking, Emma driving, and left the lot. I walked over to my car, pensive. Thomas and Arturo had been right. Someone had whipped out one hell of a nasty entropy curse. Assuming that this wasn't a coincidental focus of destructive energy, the mystical equivalent of being struck with a bolt of lightning, Sometimes energy can build up due to any number of causes. Massive amounts of emotion, traumatic events, even simple geography. That energy influences the world around us. It's what gives the cubbies the home field advantage. Though that whole billy goat thing sort of cancels it out. Leaves an intangible aura of dread around sites of tragic and violent events and causes places to get a bad reputation for strange occurrences. I hadn't sensed any particular confluence of energies until just before the curse happened to Giselle and Jake, but that didn't entirely rule out coincidence. There is a whole spectrum of magical energies that are difficult to define or understand. There are thousands of names for them in every culture. Mana, psychic energy, totem, juju, chi, bioetherial power, the force, the soul... It's an incredibly complex system of interweaving energy that influences good old Mother Earth around us, but it all boils down to a fairly simple concept. Shit happens. But then again, other people around Arturo had been hurt. I could buy that lightning could strike once, but if I hadn't interfered, it would have hit four times. Not much chance for coincidence there. No matter how much I might have wished it, the energy that had caused Giselle to slip into the glass door, the glass to break and cut her, and the lights to fall down and electrify the floor was not one of those natural hot spots of power. It had swirled past me like some vast and purposeful serpent, and it hadn't gone after the first person to cross its path. It had ignored me, Joan, Jake, Bobby, and Emma, 
and gone into the shower after the girl. So Arturo was wrong about at least one thing. He wasn't the target of the Malocchio. The women around him were. And that pissed me off. Call me a Neanderthal if you like, but I get real irrational about bad things happening to women. Human violence was at its most hideous when a woman was on the receiving end, and supernatural predators were even worse. That was why seeing Thomas in Trans Justine had set me off. I knew the girl was willing, sure. I was pretty sure Thomas didn't want any harm to come to her, but the more primitive instincts in me only saw that she was a woman and Thomas had been preying upon her. No matter what the rational part of my head thinks, when I see someone hurt a woman, my inner gigantopithecus wants to reach for the nearest bone and go Kubrickian on someone's head. I got into the car, frowning more deeply, and forced myself to calm down and think. I took deep breaths until I relaxed enough to start analyzing what I knew. The attacks had the feeling of vendetta to it. Someone had a grudge against Arturo and was deliberately striking women near him. Who would hold a grudge that vicious? A jealous woman, maybe. Especially since he was a man with three ex-wives. Madge was in business with Arturo, though. She didn't seem to me the sort who would jeopardize her fortunes with something so primitive and intangible as vengeful hatred. The most recent wife, Trisha, was in the same situation, though I hadn't yet met her. The other ex-wife, Lucille, maybe, was not supposed to be in the picture. Could she be using magic to get a little payback? I shook my head and started my car. I'd been briefly exposed to an entropy curse once. It had been a lot more powerful than the Malocchio that had nearly killed Jake and Giselle. I barely survived it, even with a hefty arsenal of magic and the sacrifice of a good man's life to divert the curse from me. I'd saved Jake and Giselle, but I'd been lucky. It could as easily have been me getting electrocuted in the pool of my own blood. I'd managed to mitigate the Malocchio, barely, but there was nothing to say that it couldn't happen again and it was more than possible that next time the lance of vicious magic would be aimed right at me. I started up the Blue Beetle and headed for my office, pondering on the road. I didn't have enough information to make a solid guess on a perpetrator. Maybe it would make more sense to examine the murder weapon, as it were, and determine how it was being used. Curses had the same sort of limitation as any other spell, after all which meant that whoever was sending the evil eye had to have some sort of means of directing the magic at a target. Body parts worked best. A lock of hair, nail clippings, and fresh blood were the most common items used, but they weren't the only ones. A poppet, a little dolly dressed up like the intended victim, could also be used to aim a malevolent spell. I've heard you can even employ a good photo but targeting the spell was only one part of the process. Before the killer could send it anywhere, he had to gather up the energy to make it happen. A curse that strong would require a whole lot of work, gathering and focusing raw magic in one place. And after that, the energy would have to be molded, shaped into its desired result. Even among the magically gifted, that kind of discipline was rare. Sure, any of the White Council could do that as a matter of routine, but the White Council didn't include everyone with magical skill. 
Most weren't talented enough to apply for an apprenticeship, and there were plenty of people who washed out and never made it through their schooling. Magic this powerful would be a dangerous business for someone new to the use of magic. Odds were good that this wasn't some petty, jealous whim of an arcane dabbler. Someone with a disturbing amount of ability was methodically committing murder. But why? Why kill women working for Arturo? What effect would it have? The people involved in his films were clearly very nervous. Maybe someone was attempting to spread terror to cause Arturo's business venture to implode. Vengeance of some kind could be a motive. But after a moment's thought, I decided that greed opened up the field to more possibilities. Greed is a nice, sterile motivation. If the money's right, you don't need to know someone to take advantage of them. You don't have to hate them or love them or be related to them. You don't even have to know who they are. You just have to want money more than you want them to keep on breathing. And if history is any indicator, that isn't a terribly uncommon frame of mind. I parked in my building's lot and stomped up the stairway to my office. Who would gain by Arturo's ruin? Silverlight Studios. I nodded. That line of thought fit a lot better than some sort of demented vengeance kick. It was a good place to get started, and I had a couple of hours to put to use. With luck, I could dig up the information I would need to support, or demolish, the idea of a bad guy with dollar signs where his conscience should be. I opened my office door, but before I could go inside, I felt something cold and hard press against the back of my neck, the barrel of a gun. My heart fluttered into sudden, startled panic. Go into the office, said a quiet, rough voice, relaxed and masculine. Don't make this any louder than it has to be. Chapter 10 Apparently a gun held to the back of my head engenders a sense of fellowship and goodwill in the depths of my soul. I cooperated. I unlocked the door to the office, and the gunman followed me in. My office isn't big, but it's on the corner and has windows on two walls. There's a table, a counter with my old coffee machine on it, some metal filing cabinets, and a table holding a display of pamphlets meant to help public relations with the normals. My desk sat in the corner between the windows, two comfy chairs for clients facing it. The gunman walked me to one of my comfy chairs and said, Sit. I sat. Hey, man, look. The gun pressed harder. Hush. I hushed. A second later, something slapped my shoulder. Take it, the gunman said. Put it on. I reached back and found a heavy cloth sleeping mask with an elastic head strap. Why? The gunman must have thumbed back the hammer of his weapon because it clicked. I put the stupid mask on. You might not know this, but I don't function all that well as an investigator when blinded. That's the idea, the gunman drolled. The gun left my neck. Try not to make me feel threatened, he said through a yawn. I'm all spooked and jittery. If you make any noise or start to get up, I'll probably twitch, and this trigger is pretty sensitive. My gun is pointed at your nose. The ensuing cause and effect chain could be inconvenient for you. Maybe next time you could just say freeze, I said. No need to walk me through it step by step.
His tone sounded like he'd colored it with a faint smile. Just want to make sure you understand the situation. If I blew your head off over a stupid misunderstanding, gosh, would our faces be red. He paused, then added, Well, mine, anyway. He didn't sound jumpy to me. He sounded bored. I heard him moving around for a minute, and then there was a sudden vibration in the air. I felt as if the skin of my face had suddenly dried into leather and tightened over my cheekbones. Okay, he said. That'll do. Take it off. I took the mask off and found the gunman sitting on the edge of my desk, a compact semi-automatic in his hand. He had it pointed at me in a casual way. He was a big guy, almost my own height, with dark golden hair, just long enough to look a little exotic. He had gray-blue eyes that stayed steady and missed nothing. He wore casual black pants and a black sports jacket over a gray T-shirt. He was billed more like a swimmer than a weightlifter, all leonine power and lazy grace taken completely for granted. I looked around and saw a circle of salt as wide as two of my fingers poured around the chair. A Morton's salt cylinder sat on the floor nearby. A bit of scarlet stained some of the salt circle, blood. He'd used it to power up the circle, and I could feel its energy trapping all the magic in it, including my own. The circle had formed a barrier that would stop magical energy cold. I'd have to physically break the circle of salt and disrupt that barrier before I could send any magic at the gunman, which was probably the point. I eyed him and said, Kincaid, I didn't expect to hear from you until tomorrow at least. Rolling stones and moss, baby, the mercenary responded. I was going through Atlanta when I got your message. It wasn't hard to get a direct flight here. What's with the Gestapo treatment? He shrugged. You're a pretty unpredictable guy, Dresden. I don't mind making a social call, but I needed assurance that you were really you. I assure you that I'm me. That's nice. Now what? He rolled one shoulder in a shrug. Now we have a nice talk. While you point a gun at me, I asked. I just want a friendly chat without either of us getting his brain redecorated with magic. I can't do that, I said. He shook a finger at me in a negative gesture. The council will burn anyone who gets caught doing it. That's different. He nodded at the circle. But from in there, you literally can't. I'm here to talk business, not to die of stupidity. If you like, think of the precautions as a compliment. I folded my arms. Because nothing says flattery like a gun to the head. Ain't that God's own truth, Kincaid said. He set the gun down on my desk, put his left hand on it. Dresden... I'm just plain folks. I'm still alive because I don't take stupid chances or walk into things blindly. I tried to ditch the stubborn anger and nodded. Okay, then. No harm, no foul. Good. He checked a nylon-strapped watch on his left wrist. I haven't got all day. He wanted to talk to me, so talk. I felt annoyed enough to start screaming, but forced myself to rein it in. There's a scourge of vampires in town. Black Court? Yeah, I said. Whose scourge? Mavra. 
Kincaid pursed his lips. Cagey old hag. I hear she heads up a pretty big crew. Yeah, I'm going to downsize them. Kincaid's index finger tapped on his gun. Black cord are tough to take down. Unless you get them in their coffins, I said. I can find them. You want me to bodyguard you until then? No, I want you to go there with me and help me kill them all. A smile parted his lips from white teeth. Going on an offensive would be nice. I'm getting bored on defense. What's the play? Find them, kill them. Kincaid nodded. Simple enough. Yeah, that's the idea. What are you going to cost me? He told me. I choked. Do you offer coupons or anything? Kincaid rolled his eyes and stood up. Christ, why did you waste my time, Dresden? Wait, I said. Look, I'll figure out a way to pay you. He arched an eyebrow. I'm good for it. Maybe, he said. But it's funny how spending a lifetime as a hired gun makes you a little cynical. Take a chance, I said. I'll get the money to you, and I'll owe you one. His eyes glittered, flickers of malice and amusement sharing space in them. Owed a favor by the infamous Dresden. I guess it might be worth enough of my time to give you a chance. Great. Two conditions, he said. Like? I want at least one more set of eyes along, he said. Someone good in a fight. Why? Because if someone gets hurt, it takes two people to get him out alive. One to carry him, and one to lay down cover fire. I didn't think you cared. Of course I do, he said. The wounded guy might be me. Fine, I said. What's the second condition? You need to understand that if you try to stiff me, I'll have to protect my interests. He lifted a hand. Don't get me wrong, it's just business. Nothing personal. It won't be an issue, I said. Besides, you wouldn't want to eat my death curse, would you? No. So I'd use a rifle at a thousand yards. The bullet outruns its own sonic boom, and you'd never even hear the shot. You'd be dead before you realized what happened. That scared me. I've faced more than a few gruesome or nightmarish creatures, but none of them had been that calm and practical. Kincaid believed that he could kill me if it came to that. And thinking about it, I believed him, too. He watched my face for a minute, and his smile turned a shade wolfish. You sure you want me on board? There was a pregnant half-second of silence. Yeah. All right. Kincaid stepped forward and brushed the salt circle with his toe. The tension of the circle's barrier vanished. But I'm on the clock. I've got to get back to Ivy's place before Sunday. Understood, I said. How do I get in touch? He slipped his gun into his jacket pocket and drew out a gray business card. He put the card on my desk and said, Pager. He turned to leave. I stood up and said, Hey, Kincaid. He glanced back at me. I tossed the sleep mask to him. He caught it. Just plain folk? I asked. Yeah. Not supernatural? I wish, he said. Vanilla mortal. You're a liar. His features smoothed into a neutral mask. Excuse me? I said you're a liar. I saw you during the fight at Wrigley, Kincaid. 
You fired a dozen shots, on the move, and dodging bad guys the whole time. What's so supernatural about that? In a fight, just plain folks miss sometimes, maybe most times. You didn't miss once. What's the point of shooting if you're just going to miss? He smiled, made a mime gun of his thumb and index finger, and aimed at me. His thumb fell forward, and he said, I'm as human as you are, Dresden. I'll see you later. Then he left. I didn't know whether to feel better or worse. On one hand, he was an experienced gunman, and absolutely deadly in a fight. Human or not, I might need someone like that with me when I confronted Mavra. On the other hand, I had no idea how I would be able to pay him. And I believed him when he said he'd assassinate me. The entire concept was scary as hell. The threat of a death curse that could be levied against a wizard's slayer was a major asset. It meant that anyone or anything that tried to attack a member of the White Council would hesitate, unwilling to risk the burst of destructive power a wizard could release in the last instance of his life. But those instants would be too slow against a high-powered sniper round fired from ambush. I could imagine it. A flash and a thump on the back of my head, a split second of surprise, and then blackness before I could even realize the need to pronounce my curse. Kincaid was right. It could work. The tactical doctrine of the powers that be in the magical communities of the world tended to run along a couple of centuries behind the rest of the planet. It was entirely possible that the senior-most wizards of the White Council had never even considered the possibility. Ditto for vampires. But it could work. The future abruptly seemed like a fairly unpleasant place for professional wizards. I set about cleaning up the salt and settled down at my little desk, putting my thoughts in order. I had to find out more about the circumstances around the victims of the Malocchio. I had to go digging for more information on Arturo Genosa's venture into the world of erotic film. And if that wasn't enough, while I did all of that, I also had to figure out how to get enough money to keep my own hired thug from putting holes in my skull. For most people, it would be a desperate situation. But most people hadn't been through them as many times as I had. My worry and tension slowly grew. And as they did... I took a perverse comfort in the familiar emotions. It actually felt good to feel my survival instincts put me on guard against premature mortality. Hell's bells. Is that insane or what? Chapter 11 I ran up a long-distance bill while I did my digging on Genosa. I called a dozen different organizations and business entities around Los Angeles, but computers answered almost every phone, and everyone I talked to referred me to their home page on the Internet. Evidently, conversation with an actual human being had become passé. Stupid Internet. I hit some walls, slammed my head against some closed doors, got a little information, and ran out of time. I wrote down Internet addresses, picked up some food and went to see Murphy. Special Investigations has its office in one of the clump of mismatched buildings comprising Chicago Police Headquarters. I checked in with a desk sergeant and showed him the consultant's ID card Murphy had given me. The man made me sign in and waved me through. 
I marched up the stairs and came out on the level housing holding cells and special investigations. I opened the door to SI and stepped inside. The main room was maybe fifty feet long and twenty wide, and desks were packed into it like sardines. The only cubicle walls in the room were around a small waiting area with a couple of worn old couches and a table with some magazines for bored adults and some toys for bored children. One of them, a plush Snoopy doll spotted with old dark stains, lay on the floor. The puppy stood over it, tiny teeth sunk into one of the doll's ears. He shook his head, his own torn ear flapping, and dragged Snoopy in a little circle while letting out small, squeaky growls. The puppy looked up at me. His tail wagged furiously, and he savaged the doll with even more enthusiasm. Hey, I told him. Murphy's supposed to be watching you. What are you doing? The puppy growled and shook Snoopy harder. I can see that, I sighed. Some babysitter she is. A tall man, going bald by degrees and dressed in a rumpled brown suit, looked up from his desk. Hey there, Harry. Sergeant Stallings, I responded. Nice moves on Murphy today. The way you slammed her foot with your stomach was inspiring. He grinned. I was expecting her to go for a lock. Woman is a nasty infighter. Everyone tried to tell O'Toole, but he's still young enough to think he's invincible. I think she made her point, I said. She around? Stallings glanced down the long room at the closed door to Murphy's cheap, tiny office. Yeah, but you know how she is with paperwork. She's ready to tear someone's head off. Don't blame her, I said, and scooped up the puppy. You get a dog? Nah, charity case. Murphy was supposed to be keeping an eye on him. Buzzer for me? Stallings shook his head and turned his phone around to face me. I plan to retire. You do it. I grinned and went on down to Murphy's office, nodding to a couple other guys with S.I. along the way. I knocked on the door. God damn it, Murphy swore from the other side. I said not now. It's Harry, I said, just stopping by to get the dog. Oh, God, she snarled. Back away from the door. I did. A second later, the door opened and Murphy glared up at me, blue eyes bright and cold. Get more away. I've been fighting this computer all day long. I swear if you blow out my hard drive again, I'm taking it out of your ass. Why would your hard drive be in my ass, I said. Murphy's eyes narrowed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll be going then. Whatever, she said, and shut her office door hard. I frowned. Murphy wasn't really a whatever sort of person. I tried to remember the last time I'd seen Murphy that short and abrupt. When she'd been in the midst of post-traumatic stress, she'd been remote, but not angry. When she was keyed up for a fight or feeling threatened, she'd be furious, but she didn't draw away from her friends. The only thing that had come close to this was when she thought I was involved in a string of supernatural killings. From where she'd been standing, it looked like I had betrayed her trust, and she had expressed her anger with a right cross that had chipped one of my teeth. Something was upsetting her. A lot. Merv, I asked through the door, where did the aliens hide your pod? She opened the door enough to scowl at me. What's that supposed to mean? No pod, huh? Maybe you're an evil twin from another dimension or something? The muscles along her jaw clenched, and her expression promised murder. 
I sighed. You don't seem to be your usual self. I'm not an analyst or anything, but you kind of look like something is bothering you. Just maybe? She waved a hand. It's this paperwork. No, it isn't, I said. Come on, Murphy, it's me. I don't want to talk about it. I shrugged. Maybe you need to. You're about two steps shy of psychotic right now. She reached for her door again, but didn't close it. Just a bad day. I didn't believe her, but I said, Sure, okay. I'm sorry if the dog added to it. Her expression became tired. She leaned against the doorway. No, no, he was great. Barely made a sound. Quiet as a mouse all day long. Even used the papers I put down. I nodded. You sure you don't want to talk? She grimaced and glanced around the office. Maybe not here. Walk with me. We left and headed down the hall to the vending machines. Murphy didn't say anything until she bought a Snickers bar. My mom called, she said. Bad news, I asked. Yeah. She closed her eyes and bit off a third of the candy bar. Sort of. Not really. Oh, I said, as if her answer made some kind of sense. What happened? She ate more chocolate and said, My sister, Lisa, is engaged. Oh, I said. When in doubt, be noncommittal. I didn't know you had a sister. She's my baby sister. Um, my condolences, I guessed. She glowered at me. She did this on purpose, with the reunion this weekend. She knew exactly what she was doing. Well, it's a good thing someone knew, because so far I have no freaking clue. Murphy finished the candy bar. My baby sister is engaged. She's going to be showing up this weekend with her fiancé, and I'm going to be there without a fiancé or a husband or even a boyfriend. My mother will never let me hear the end of it. Well, uh, you had a husband, right? Two of them, even. She glared. The Murphys are Irish Catholic, she said. My not one, but two, count them, two divorces won't exactly wash clean the stigma. Oh. Well, I'm sure whoever you're dating would show up with you, right? She glanced back toward the SI offices. If looks could kill, hers would have blown that section of the building into Lake Michigan. Are you kidding? I don't have time. I haven't been on a date in two years. Maybe I should have gone for the ultimate inept remark and started singing about how short people got nobody to love. I decided to sting her pride a little instead. She'd reacted well to it before. The mighty Murphy, slayer of various and sundry nasty monsters, vampires and so on. And trolls, Murphy said. Two more when you were out of town last summer. Uh-huh. And you're letting a little family shindig get you down like this? She shook her head. Look, it's a personal thing between me and my mom. And your mom is going to think less of you for being single. A career woman? I regarded her skeptically. Murphy, don't tell me you're a mama's girl under all the tough chick persona. She stared at me for a moment, exasperation and sadness sharing space on her features. I'm the oldest daughter, she said, and, 
Well, the whole time I was growing up, I just assumed that I'd be her successor, I guess. That I'd follow her example. We both did. It's one of the things that made us close. The whole family knew it. And if your baby sister is all of a sudden more like your mom than you are, what? It threatens your relationship with her? No, she said, annoyance in her tone. Not like that. Not really. And sort of. It's complicated. I can see that, I said. She slumped against the vending machine. My mom is pretty cool, Murphy said. But it's been hard to stay close to her the past few years. I mean, the job keeps me busy. She doesn't think I should have divorced my second husband, and that's been between us a little. And I've changed. The past couple of years have been scary. I learned more than I wanted to know. I winced. Yeah. Well, I tried to warn you about that. You did, she said. I made my choice. I can handle living with it. But I can't exactly sit down and chat with her about it. So it's one more thing that I can't talk about with my mother. Little things, you know. A lot of them. Pushing us apart. So talk to her, I said. Tell her there's stuff you can't talk about. Doesn't mean you don't want to be around her. I can't do that, I blinked. Why not? Because I can't, she said. It just doesn't work like that. Murphy had genuine worry on her face and actual tears in her eyes, and I started feeling out of my depth. Maybe because it was a family thing. It seemed like something completely alien, and I didn't get it. Murphy was worried about being close to her mom. Murphy should just go talk to her mom, right? bite the bullet and clear the air. With anyone else, she'd have handled the problem exactly that way. But I've noticed that people got the most irrational whenever family was around, while simultaneously losing their ability to distinguish reason from insanity. I call it familial dementia. I may not have understood the problem, but Murphy was my friend. She was obviously hurting, and that's all I really needed to know. Look, Murph... Maybe you're making more of it than you need to. I mean, seems to me that if your mom cares about you, she'd be as willing as you are to talk. She doesn't approve of my career, Murphy said tiredly. Or my decision to live alone once I was divorced. We've already done all the talking on those subjects, and neither one of us is going to budge. Now that I could understand. I'd been on the receiving end of Murphy's stubborn streak before, and I had a chipped tooth to show for it. So you haven't shown up at the reunion, where you'd see her and have to avoid all kinds of awkward topics for the past two years. Something like that, Murphy said. People are talking, and we're all Murphys, so sooner or later someone is going to start giving unasked-for advice, and then it will be a mess. But I don't know what to do. My sister getting engaged is going to get everyone talking about subjects I'd rather slash my wrists than discuss with my uncles and cousins. So don't go, I said. And hurt my mom's feelings a little more, she said. Hell, probably make people talk even more than if I was there. I shook my head. Well, you're right about one thing. I don't understand it, Murph. It's okay, she said. But I wish I did, I said. I wish I worried about my uncle's opinions, 
and had problems to work out with my mom. Hell, I'd settle for knowing what her voice sounded like. I put a hand on her shoulder. Trite but true. You don't know what you have until it's gone. People change. The world changes. And sooner or later, you lose people you care about. If you don't mind some advice from someone who doesn't know much about families, I can tell you this. Don't take yours for granted. It might feel like all of them will always be there. But they won't. She looked down so that I couldn't see a tear fall, I guess. Talk to her, Karen. You're probably right, she said, nodding. So I'm not going to kill you for shoving your well-intentioned opinion down my throat in a vulnerable moment. Just this once. That's decent of you, I said. She took a deep breath, flicked a hand at her eyes, and looked up with a more business-like face. You're a good friend, putting up with this crap. I'll make it up to you sometime. Funny you should say that, I said. Why? I'm scouting out a money trail, but the information I'm after is apparently on the Internet. Could you hit a few sites for me? Help me get my hands on it? Yes. Gracias. I passed her the addresses and gave her a brief rundown of what I was looking for. I'm going to be out and about. I'll call you in an hour or two. She sighed and nodded. Did you find the vampires? Not yet, but I got some backup. Who? she asked. Guy named Kincaid. He's tough. A wizard? No. One of those soldier of fortune types. Pretty good vampire slayer. Murphy arched a brow. Is he clean? As far as I know, I said. I should hear from our wheelman tonight. With luck, I'll find the lair and we'll hit them. Hey, if it just so happens that we have to go after them on Saturday, I finished for her. I know. I left and told the pup my theory about familial dementia on the way down the stairs. It's just a theory, mind you, but it's got the support of a ton of empirical evidence. I felt a quiet pang of sadness as I spoke. Family troubles were something I hadn't ever had, wouldn't ever have. Murphy's problems with family might have been complicated and unpleasant, but at least they existed. Every time I thought I had gotten through my orphan baggage, something like this came up. Maybe I didn't want to admit how much it still hurt, not even to myself. I scratched the pup's notched ear as I walked out to the beetle. My theory is just theoretical, I told him. Because how the hell should I know? Chapter 12 I swung past my apartment to grab lunch, a shower, and some clothes without so much blood on them. A beat-up old rabbit had lost a game of bumper tag with a Suburban, and traffic was backed up for a mile. As a result, I got back to the set a few minutes late. A vaguely familiar girl with a clipboard met me at the door. She wasn't old enough to drink, but made up for a lack of maturity with what I could only describe as a gratuitous amount of perkiness. She was pretty, more awkwardly skinny than sleek, and had skin the color of cream. Her dark hair was done up in Princess Leia cinnamon rolls, and she wore jeans, a peasant-style blouse, and clunky-looking sandals. Hi, she said. Hi yourself. She checked her clipboard. You must be Harry, then. You're the only one left, and you're late. I was on time this morning. That makes you half as good as a broken watch. You should be proud.
She smiled again to let me know she was teasing. Didn't I see you talking to Justine at Arturo's party? Yeah, I was there. Had to leave before I turned into a pumpkin. She laughed and stuck out her hand. I'm Inari. I'm an associate production assistant. I shook her hand. She wore some light, sweet scent that I liked, something that reminded me of buzzing locusts and lazy summer nights. Nice to meet you. Unless you're stealing my job, you're not a scab, are you? Inari grinned, and it transformed her face from moderately attractive to lovely. She had great dimples. No, as an associate gopher, I'm down the ladder from you. I think your job is safe. She checked a plastic wristwatch. Oh, God, we need to get moving. Arturo asked me to take you to his office as soon as you got here. This way. What's he want? Beats me, Anari said. She started a brisk walk, and I had to lengthen my steps to keep up with her as she led me deeper into the building. She flipped to a second page and took a pen from behind one hair bun. Oh, what would you like on your vegetarian pizza? Dead pigs and cows, I said. She glanced up at me and wrinkled her nose. They're vegetarians, I said defensively. She looked skeptical. With all the hormones and things they put in meats, you know that they're having a number of very bad effects on you, right? Do you know the kind of long-term damage fatty meats can do to your intestinal tract? I choose to exercise my status as an apex predator, and I laugh in the face of cholesterol. With an attitude like that, you're going to wind up with bulletproof arteries. Bring it. Inari shook her head, her expression pleasant and unyielding. Everyone decided they wanted to stick with veggies when I order. If someone has meat, the grease will get all over the rest of the pizza, so they settled on veggies. Then I guess I will, too. But what do you want on yours? I mean, I'm supposed to make everyone happy here. Kill me some animals, then, I said. It's a protein thing. Oh, you should have said, Inari replied, smiling at me. We stopped in front of a door, and she scribbled on her clipboard. Some extra cheese, maybe some beans and corn... Or, wait, tofu, protein, I'll fix you up. Bean curd pizza, good grief. I should raise my rates. You do that. The puppy stirred in my pocket, and I stopped. Here, there's something you could help me with. She tilted her head at me. Oh? I reached into my pocket and drew the pup out. He was sleeping, every inch of him completely limp. Could you keep my friend company while I talk to Arturo? The girl melted with adoration, the way only girls can, and took the pup, cradling him in the crook of her arm and crooning to him. Oh, he's so sweet. What's his name? No name, I said, just watching him for a day or three. He might be hungry or thirsty when he wakes up. I love dogs, she replied. I'll take good care of him. Appreciate it. She started to walk away. Oh, Harry, I almost forgot. What do you want to drink? Is Coke okay? I eyed her suspiciously. It isn't non-caffeinated, is it? She arched a brow. I'm health conscious, not insane. Dear child, I said. She gave me another sunny smile and jounced off down the hall, holding the pup as if he were made of glass. I went into the office. Arturo Genosa was inside, sitting on the corner of a desk. His silver hair looked rumpled, and a half-smoked cigar smoldered in a thick ashtray beside him. He summoned up a tired smile for me as I came in. Hey, howdy. He came over and gave me one of those manly Mediterranean hugs, the kind that leave bruises. God bless you, Mr. Dresden. Without you there, I think we would have lost them both. Thank you. 
He kissed me on either cheek. I'm not a kissy, huggy type, really, but I figured it was another manly, European affection thing. Either that or he'd just marked me for death. I stepped back and said, The girl gonna be all right? Arturo nodded. Going to live? All right? That I don't know. He waved a hand at his neck. The scars, they will be very bad. Tough on an actress. He nodded. In the phone book, your ad says you give advice. Technically, I sell it, I said, but that's really more for... I need to know, he said, need to know whether I should stop the project. I arched an eyebrow. You think that's why these people have been attacked? He picked up his cigar, fiddling around with it. I don't know what to think, but I was nowhere nearby. This could not have been an attack on me. I agree, I said, and it was the evil eye, I'm sure of it. Mr. Dresden, if a man threatens me, then it is nothing to face it. But this person, whoever he is, is hurting the people near me. I no longer choose only for myself. Why would someone want to stop your film, Mr. Genosa? I asked. I mean, pardon me if this insults you, but it's a skin flick. There's lots of them. I don't know. Maybe it is the business end, he said. Small entrepreneur maybe could be a threat to more entrenched businessmen. So they lean, apply pressure, quietly, you understand. If I didn't know better, I'd swear you just told me that you were being persecuted by a covert pornography syndicate. Genosa put the cigar in his mouth, rolling it around. He drummed his fingers on the desk and lowered his voice. You joke, but in the past few years, someone has been buying the studios a little at a time. Who? He shook his head. It's hard to say. I have investigated, but I am not a detective. Is there any way you could... I'm already on it. I'll tell you if I turn up anything. Thank you, he said. But... What should I do today? I can't allow any of these people to be harmed. You're racing the clock, right? If you don't finish the film, your business is kaput. Yes. How long do you have? Today and tomorrow, he said. Then you should ask yourself how willing you are to let ambition get someone killed. Then weigh it against how willing you are to let someone scare you out of living your life. I frowned. Or maybe lives, plural. You're right when you say you aren't choosing only for yourself. How can I make that choice? he asked. I shrugged. Look, Arturo, you need to decide if you are protecting these people or leading them. There's a difference. He rolled the cigar back and forth between his fingers and then nodded slowly. They are adults. I am not their father. But I cannot ask them to risk themselves if they do not wish to. I will tell them they are free to leave should they choose with no ill will. But you will stay? He nodded firmly. Leader, then, I said. Next thing you know, Arturo, I'll be buying you a big round table. It took him a second, but he laughed. I see. Arthur and Merlin. Yeah, I said. He regarded me thoughtfully. Your advice is good. For a young man, you have good judgment. You haven't seen my car, Arturo laughed. He offered me a cigar, but I turned him down with a smile. No, thank you. 
You look troubled. Yeah, something about your situation doesn't sit right with me. This whole thing is hinky. Genosa blinked. It is what? Hinky, I said. Uh, it's sort of a Chicago word. I mean that there's something not right about what's going on. Yes, he agreed. People are getting hurt. That's not it, I said. The attacks have been brutal. That means that the intentions of whoever is behind them are equally brutal. You can't sling around magic that you don't really believe in. That isn't something a simple business competitor would come up with. Even assuming some hardball corporate types decided to start trying a supernatural angle instead of hiring $50 bruisers to lean on you. You think it is personal? he asked. I don't think anything yet, I said. I need to do more digging. He nodded, expression sober. If you stay here, you can keep protecting my people? I think so. He pressed his lips together, expression resolved. Then I will tell the... The door flew open, and a living goddess of a woman stormed into the office. She was maybe five foot four and had brilliant, lush, blonde, highlighted red hair that fell to the small of her back. She wore only high-heeled pumps and a matching dark green two-piece set of expensive-looking designer lingerie, translucent enough to defeat the purpose of wearing clothing at all. It ably displayed all kinds of pleasant proportions of tanned, athletic female. Arturo, you Euro-trash pig, she snarled. What do you think you were doing, bringing that woman here? Genosa flinched at the tone and did not look at the woman. Hello, Trish. Do not call me that, Arturo. I've told you over and over. Genosa sighed. Harry, this is my newest ex-wife, Trisha Scrump. And he let this gem slip out of his fingers? Shocking. The woman's eyes narrowed. Trixie. Vixen. It's been legally changed. Okay, Arturo said mildly. Now, what are you talking about? You know full well what I'm talking about, she spat the words. If you think you're going to split this feature between two stars, you are sadly mistaken. That isn't going to happen at all, he said. But with Giselle Hurt, I had to find someone else, and on such short notice... Don't patronize me, Trisha ground her teeth. Lara is retired. Re-ti-erd. This film is mine. I am not going to let you use my drawing power to fuel a comeback appearance for that... that bitch. I thought about pots and kettles. It won't be an issue, Genosa said. She has agreed to a mask and a pseudonym. You are the star, Trisha. That has not changed. Trixie Vixen folded her arms, geometrically increasing her cleavage. Fine, then, she snapped. As long as we understand each other. We do, Arturo said. She threw her hair back over her shoulder, a gesture filled with arrogance, and glared at me. And who is this? Harry, I provided. Production assistant. Well then, Larry, where the hell is my latte? I sent you for it an hour ago. Evidently, reality did not often intrude on Trisha Scrump's life. It was probably shacked up with courtesy somewhere. I prepared to return verbal fire, but a panicked look from Arturo stopped the first reply that sprang to mind. Sorry, I'll take care of it. See that you do, she said. 
She spun on one high heel, displaying her G-string, and an ass that probably deserved its own billing in the credits, and stalked out. At least, she started to. She abruptly stopped, frozen, her body tightening with tension. A woman that made Trixie Vixen look like the ugly stepsister appeared in the door and blocked the starlet's exit. I had to force myself not to stare. Trisha, Trixie, Scrump, nay Genosa, nay Vixen's beauty was up to code. You could run a checklist from it. Lovely mouth, deep eyes, full breast, slender waist, flared hips, long and shapely legs, check, check, check. She looked like she'd been ordered from a catalog and assembled from a kit. She was a vision of a woman, but a prefabricated one, painted by numbers. The newcomer was the real thing. She was grace, beauty, art. As such, she was not so easily quantified. She would have been tall, even without the heeled faux Victorian boots of Italian leather. Her hair was so dark that its highlights were nearly blue, a torrent of glossy curls held partially in check with a pair of milky ivory combs. She had eyes of dark gray with hints of violet twilight at their centers. Her clothes were all effortless style. Natural fabrics, black skirt, and jacket embroidered with abstract dark crimson roses with a white blouse. Thinking back later, I couldn't clearly remember her facial features or her body, beyond a notion that they were superb. Her looks were almost extraneous. They weren't any more important to her appeal than a glass was to wine. It was at its best when invisible and showing the spirit contained within. Beyond mere physical presence, I could sense the nature of the woman. Strength of will, intelligence, blended with a sardonic wit and edged with a lazy, sensuous hunger. Or maybe the hunger was mine. In the space of five seconds, my attention to detail fractured, and I wanted her. I wanted her in the most primal sense, in every way I could conceive. Whatever gentle and chivalrous tendencies my soul harbored suddenly evaporated. Images swarmed over me, images of unleashing the fires burning in me upon willing flesh. Conscience withered a heartbeat later, something hungry, confident and unrepentant took its place. I realized, on some distant level, that something was wrong, but there was no tangible, tactile sense of truth to the thought. Instincts ruled me, and only the most feral, vicious drives remained. I liked it. A lot. While my inner Neanderthal was pounding his chest, Trixie Vixen took a step back from the dark-haired woman. I couldn't see her face, but her voice crackled with too much anger. She was afraid. Hello, Lara. Trish, the woman said, with faint contemptuous emphasis on the name. Her voice smoldered, so low and delicious that my toes started to curl up. You look lovely. I'm surprised to see you here, Trisha said. There aren't any whips or chains on the set. Lara shrugged, perfectly relaxed. I've always felt that the best whips and chains are in the mind. With a little creativity, the physical ones are hardly necessary. Lara stared down at Trisha for a moment and then asked, Have you given any more thought to my offer?
I don't do bondage films, Tricia said. A sneer colored the words. They're for wrinkled old has-beens. She started forward with a determined stride. Lara didn't move. Tricia stopped a bare inch from her, and they met gazes again. The red-headed film star started trembling. Perhaps you're right, Lara said. She smiled and stepped clear of the doorway. Keep in touch, Trish. Trixie Vixen fled. At least as much as someone wobbling away on six-inch heels can flee. The dark-haired woman watched her with a smug smile on her mouth and then said, Exit scene. It must be difficult to be the center of the universe. Good afternoon, Arturo. Lera, Arturo said. His tone was that of an uncle chiding his favorite niece. He came around his desk and walked over to the woman, offering both hands. You shouldn't tease her like that. Arturo, she said warmly. She took his hands and they did more social cheek kissing. I shook my head while they did and managed to shove my libido out of the driver's seat of my brain. Captain of my own soul. Even if my pants were considering mutiny, I began focusing my thoughts, building up a barrier to shield them. You are an angel, Arturo said to her. His voice was steady and kind, and not at all that of a man having most of his blood channeled south of his belly button. How the hell could he not have reacted to her presence? An angel to come here so quickly to help me. She waved a hand in a lazy motion. Her fingernails weren't terribly long and didn't have any polish. I'm always glad to help a friend, Arturo. Are you all right? she asked. Jones said you'd forgotten to refill your prescription. He sighed. I'm fine. Lowering my blood pressure would not have helped Giselle. Lara nodded. It's horrible what happened. I'm so sorry. Thank you, he said. I am not sure I am comfortable to have Inari here. She's a child. That's arguable, Lara said. After all, she's old enough to perform now, if she wishes. Arturo looked startled and a little sick. Lara! She laughed. I'm not saying she should, dear fool. Only that my baby sister makes her own choices now. They grow, Arturo said. His voice was a little sad. They do, Lara's eyes moved over to me. And who is this? Tall, dark, and silent. I like him already. Harry, Arturo replied. He beckoned me over. Lara Romani, meet Harry, our new production assistant. He just started today, so be kind to him. That shouldn't be too hard, she said, and slipped her arm through Genosa's. Joan wanted me to tell you that your prescription came in and that she needs your help on the set. Arturo nodded with a strained but genuine smile. And you are to escort me down to take my medicine, huh? Via my feminine wiles, Lara confirmed. Harry, Arturo said. I need to make a quick call, I answered. I'll be right behind you. The two of them left. Lara threw another look at me over her shoulder, her expression speculative. And hot. I mean, wow.
If she'd crooked her finger, I think I would have been in danger of floating off the floor and drifting along behind her on a cloud of her perfume. Me and Peppy Le Pew. It took me maybe half a minute after they walked away before I was able to reboot my brain. After that, I ran a quick review of what had just happened through the old gray matter. Pretty, pale, supernaturally sexy, and just a little scary. I could do the math, and I was willing to bet that Romani wasn't Lara's last name. She looked a hell of a lot more like a wraith. Son of a bitch. The white court was here. A succubus on the set. Strike that. The health-conscious kid's sister made it, too. Succubuses. Succubuses? Succubi? Stupid Latin correspondence course. Or maybe she wasn't one, because I hadn't felt a thing like the attraction Lara Romani exuded when I was near little Inari. It really hit me, then, that I'd wandered into a mess that might get me killed, regardless of how silly and embarrassing it sounded. Now, I had to contend not only with pornography syndicate conspiracies, but also a succubus of the white court, or maybe more than one, which for grammatical reasons I hoped was not the case. So, in addition to a feisty new black court partner in the war dance between the council and the vampire courts, I also got angry lust bunny movie stars, deadly curses, and a thoroughly embarrassing job as my investigative cover. Oh, and bean curd pizza, which is just wrong. What a mess. I made a mental note. The next time I saw Thomas, I was going to punch him right in the nose. Chapter 13 After two or three tries, I got Genosa's phone to dial out to Murphy. It's me, Murph. You get that information off the Internet? Yeah, and then I talked to some people I know out there. I dug up some goodies for you. Peachy. Like what? Nothing that will stand up in a court, but it might help you figure out what's going on. Wow, Murph. It's as if you were a detective. Bite me, Dresden. Here's the deal on Genosa. He's a dual citizen of the States and Greece. He's the last son of a big money family that fell on hard times. Rumor has it he left Greece to avoid his parents' debts. Uh-huh, I said. I continued searching through Genosa's desk and found a big old leather-bound photo album. I'm listening. He wound up making and directing sex films, did well investing the money, and he's worth a little more than four million personally. Sex sells, I frowned, flipping through the photo album. It was neatly packed with excerpts from newspapers, transcripts, and photos of Genosa on the set of a number of national talk shows. There was another of him standing beside Hugh Hefner and surrounded by a number of lovely young women. That's a lot of money. Is that all? No, Murphy said. He's paying alimony to three ex-wives out of some kind of fund set up to provide it. He's got almost all of what's left tied up in starting his own studio. I grunted. Genosa's under some serious pressure, then. How so? He's only got about 36 hours to finish his movie, I said. He's got one project done, but if he doesn't get a pair of profitable films, he'll lose the studio. You figure someone is trying to run him out of business? Occam thinks so. I turned another page and blinked at the article there. Damn. What? 
He's a revolutionary. He's what? Murphy asked. I repeated myself redundantly again. Apparently Arturo Genosa is considered a revolutionary in his field. I could almost hear Murphy lift a skeptical eyebrow. A revolutionary boink czar? So it would seem. She snorted. How exactly do you get to become a porn revolutionary? Practice, 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 I guessed. Wise ass? I kept flipping pages, skimming the album. He's been interviewed in about thirty magazines. Yeah, Murphy said. Probably with illustrious names like, uh, like Jugs a Poppin' and Barely Legal Lolita Schoolgirls. I thumbed through pages. And People, Time, Entertainment Weekly, and USA Today. He's also been on Larry King and Oprah. You're kidding, she said. Oprah? Why? Hang on, I'm reading. It looks like he's got this crazy notion that everyone should be able to enjoy themselves in bed without going insane, trying to meet an impossible standard. He thinks that sex is natural. Sex is natural, Murphy said. Sex is good. Not everybody does it, but everybody should. I'm the wise ass. You're the cop. Respect my boundaries. I kept reading. Genoso also casts people of a lot of different ages instead of using only 20-year-old dancers. According to a transcript of Larry King, he avoids gynecological close-ups and picks people based on the genuine sensuality of their performance rather than purely on appearance. And he doesn't believe in using surgically altered, um... My face heated up. Murphy was probably my best friend, but she was still a girl, and a gentleman just doesn't say some words in front of a lady. I held the phone with my shoulder and made a cupping motion in front of my chest with both hands. You know. Boobs, Murphy said brightly. Jugs? Hooters? Yayas? I guess. She continued as if I hadn't said anything. Melons? Torpedoes? Tits? Gazongas? Knockers? Tatas? Hell's bells, Murph. She laughed at me. You're cute when you're embarrassed. I thought breast implants were required industry equipment, like hard hats and steel-toed boots for construction workers. Not according to Genosa, I said. He's quoted here saying that natural beauty and genuine desire make for better sex than all the silicone in California. I'm not sure whether I should be impressed or a little nauseous, Murphy said. Six of one and half dozen of another, I said. Bottom line is that he's not your average pornographic artist. I'm not sure that's saying much, Harry. If you'd said that before I met him, I'd probably have agreed. But I'm not so sure now. I don't get any nasty vibe off him. He seems like a decent guy. Taking some measure of responsibility. Challenging the status quo, even if it hurts his profits. I'm pretty sure there's no Nobel Prize for pornography. My point is that he's applying some measure of integrity to it, and people are responding well to him. Except for the ones trying to kill him, Murphy said. Harry, this is cynical, but people who choose a life like that draw problems down onto themselves sooner or later. You're right. That is cynical. You can't help everyone. You'll go insane if you try. Look, the guy is in trouble, and he's a fellow human being. I don't have to love his lifestyle to want to keep bad things from happening to him. Yeah, Murphy sighed. I guess I know this tune. Do you think I could convince you to... 
The skin on the back of my neck went cold and clammy, tingling. I turned to the office doorway in time to see the lights in the hall flick out. My heart pounded in sudden apprehension. A shadowy figure appeared in the office door. I picked up the first thing my hand found, Genosa's heavy glass ashtray, and flung it hard at the figure. The ashtray rebounded off the inner edge of the door and struck whoever it was. I heard a voiceless gasp of air. At the same time, something hissed past my ear. A sharp thumping sound came from the wall behind me. I shouted at the top of my lungs and ran forward, but my foot tangled in the phone cord. It didn't tug me into a pratfall, but I stumbled, and it gave the shadowy figure time to run. By the time I'd recovered my balance and gotten to the hallway, I couldn't see or hear anyone. The hall itself was dark, and I couldn't remember the locations of either light switches or doors, which made a headlong pursuit less than advisable. It occurred to me that I made a wonderful target, leaning out of the door of the dimly lit office, and I slipped back inside, shutting and locking the door behind me as I went. I looked at whatever had thumped into the wall behind me and found, of all the stupid things, a small dart fixed with exotic-looking yellow feathers fringed with a tinge of pink. I tugged the dart out of the wall. It was tipped with what appeared to be bone instead of metal, and the bone was stained with something dark red or dark brown. I had the feeling it wasn't turtle wax. A poisoned blowgun dart. I'd been ambushed before, but that was pretty exotic, even for me. Almost silly, really. Who the hell got killed with poison blowgun darts these days? A buzz of noise came from the dropped receiver of the phone. I picked up an empty plastic cigar tube from next to Genosa's humidor and slipped a dart into it, then capped it before I picked up the phone. Harry? Murphy was demanding. Harry, are you all right? Fine, I said. And it looks like I'm on the right track. What happened? I held up the cigar tube and peered at the dart. The poison tip gleamed with its semi-gelatinous stain. It was pretty clumsy, but I think someone just tried to kill me. Chapter 14 Get out of there, Harry. No, Murph, I said. Look, I think it was just someone trying to scare me, or they'd have used a gun. Can you get to those records today? If there are matters of public record, she said, we've got the time difference on our side. What are you hoping to find? More, I said. This whole thing stinks. Hard to put a puzzle together when you're missing pieces. Get in touch if you learn something, Murphy said. Magic or not, attempted murder is police business. It's my business. This time, for sure, I said. Watch your ass, Bullwinkle. Always. Thanks again, Murph. I hung up and flipped through the next several pages of Genosa's scrapbook, expecting nothing but more articles. I got lucky on the last few pages. He had big, glossy, color photos there, three women, and I recognized two of them. A subtitle beneath the first picture read, Elizabeth Guns. The photo was of Madge, Genosa's first wife. She looked like she'd been in her mid-twenties in the picture, and she was more or less nude. Her hair was enormous and stiff-looking, an artificial shade of deep scarlet. She probably had to take off her makeup with a Zamboni machine. The next photo read Raven Velvet beneath a picture of a nearly Amazonian brunette I didn't recognize. 
She had the kind of build that fairly serious female athletes can get, where the muscles are present, defined with obvious strength, but softened and rounded enough to look more pretty than formidable. Her hair was cut in a short page boy, and at first I thought her features were really quite sweet, almost kind. But her expression was an unsmiling, haughty stare at the camera. Ex-Genosa too, I supposed. He'd called her Lucille. The last picture was of the third former Mrs. Genosa. It was subtitled Trixie Vixen, but someone had written across it in black permanent marker, Rot in Hell, You Pig. There was no signature to tell who was responsible. Gee, I wonder. I flipped through the album once more, but didn't see anything new. At some point, I realized that I was delaying going down to the set. I mean, yeah, there were probably going to be naked girls doing a variety of interesting things, and I hadn't gotten laid in a depressing number of months, which probably made it sound a little more interesting. But there's a time and a place to enjoy that kind of thing, and for me, in front of a bunch of people and cameras, was not it. But I was a professional, damn it, and this was the job. I couldn't bodyguard anyone if I wasn't close enough to them to act. I couldn't figure out the source of the dark mojo without figuring out what was going on. And to do that, I needed to observe and ask questions, preferably without anyone knowing that that's what I was doing. That was the smart thing, the professional thing. Conduct covert interviews while icons of sensual beauty got it on under stage lights. Onward. I screwed up my courage, so to speak, and slipped warily out of the office and down the dimly lit hall to the studio. There were a surprising number of people there. It was an enormous room, but it still looked busy. There were a couple of guys on each of four cameras, and there were a few more on hanging scaffolds that supported the stage lighting. A crew was working on the lighted set, which consisted of a bunch of panels made to look like an old brick wall. A couple of garbage cans, a trash bin, some loading pallets, and random bits of litter. Arturo and the beflanneled Joan were at the center of the activity, speaking to each other as they moved around, placing cameras to their liking. Colt-legged Inari drifted along behind them, marking positions on a chart. The notch-eared puppy followed her clumsily around, a piece of pink yarn tied around his neck and one of the loops of Inari's jeans. The puppy's tail wagged happily. I was supposed to be doing the assistant thing, after all, so I walked over to Genosa. The puppy saw me and galloped headlong into my shoe. I leaned down and scratched his ears. What should I do to help, Arturo? He nodded at Joan. Stick with her. She can show you the ropes as well as anyone. Watch, ask questions. Okie dokie, I said. You've met Inari? Arturo asked. Bumped into her already, I said. The girl smiled and nodded. I like him. He's funny. Looks aren't everything, I said. Inari's laugh was interrupted when her pants beeped. She reached into them and drew out an expensive cell phone the size of a couple of postage stamps. I scooped up the puppy and held him in the crook of one arm, and Inari untied his makeshift lead and handed it to me before walking a few steps away, phone to her ear. A harried-looking woman in sweeping skirts and a peasant blouse came half-running across the studio floor, straight to Joan and Arturo. 
Mr. Genosa, I think you better come to the dressing room right now. Genosa's eyes widened and his face went pale. He shot me a questioning glance. I shook my head at him and gave him a thumbs up. He let out a slow breath and then said, What is happening? Joan, behind him, checked her watch, rolled her eyes, and said, It's Trixie. The woman nodded with a sigh. She says she's leaving. Arturo sighed. Of course she'd say that. Shall we, Marion? They left, and Joan scowled. There's no time for that prima donna. Is there ever? Her frown faded, replaced by simple weariness. I suppose not. I just don't understand the woman. This project means as much to her future as to everyone else's. Being the center of the universe is a big job. Maybe it's weighing on her nerves. Joan threw her head back and laughed. That must be it. Let's get moving. What's first? We went to one of the other sets. This one dressed up like a cheap bar and started going through boxes of random bottles and mugs for a more detailed appearance. I set the puppy down on the bar, and he waddled up and down the length of it, nose down to the surface and sniffing. After a few moments, I asked, How long have you known Arturo? Joan hesitated for a second, then continued dressing up the set. Eighteen or nineteen years, I think. He seems like a nice man. She smiled again. He isn't, she said. He's a nice boy. I lifted my eyebrows. How so? She rolled one shoulder in a shrug. He lives on the outside of his skin. He's impulsive, more passionate than he can afford to be, and he'll fall in love at the drop of a hat. And that's bad? Sometimes, she said. But he makes up for it. He cares about people. Here, you get that top shelf. You don't need a stepladder. I complied. Soon I'll move up to putting stars and angels on the tops of Christmas trees. Me and that Yeti and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Joan laughed again and answered me. Her words became indistinct and toneless, like the teacher in the Peanuts cartoons. My heart began to race, and a stab of both food hunger and lust went through my stomach on its way to the base of my spine. My head turned of its own volition, and I saw Lara Romani enter the studio. She'd done her hair up in a style belonging to ancient Greece or Rome. She wore a short black silk robe with matching heels and stockings. She slid over the floor with a kind of fascinating serpentine grace. I wanted to watch without moving, but some stubborn part of me shoved my brain into an intellectual cold shower she was a life-draining vampire. I'd be stupid to let myself keep on reacting that way. I tore my eyes off of her and realized that the puppy had come to the edge of the bar near me. He was crouched, his eyes on Lara, and was growling his squeaky little growl again. I looked around and kept my eyes from moving back to her only by an effort of will. Every man in the room had become still eyes locked on Lara as she walked. A woman is Viagra with legs, Joan muttered. Though, I've got to admit, she knows how to make an entrance. Um, yeah. Lara took a seat in a folding chair, and Inari hurried over to kneel beside it in conversation. 
the electric sense of desire and compulsion faded a little, and people started moving about their tasks again. I helped Joan out and kept the puppy near me, and in half an hour the first scene started shooting with Jake Guffey and a somewhat sullen-looking Trixie Vixen on the alley set. Okay, let me tell you something. Porno sex is only loosely related to actual sex. The actors are constantly getting interrupted. They have to keep their faces turned in the right direction, and the body angling they have to do for the camera would make a contortionist beg for mercy. Every once in a while, someone has to touch up their makeup, and it isn't only on their faces. You wouldn't believe where it all goes. There are lights shining in their eyes, people with cameras moving all around, and on top of all of that, Arturo was giving them directions from behind the cameras. Granted, my own sexual experience is somewhat limited, but I never found any of that necessary. It was embarrassing for me to watch. Maybe in the editing room the scene would turn into something sensual and alluring, but on the set it mostly looked awkward and uncomfortable. I found excuses to look at other things, working hard to make sure one of them wasn't the lovely vampire, and I kept my eyes peeled for more deadly magic. Maybe an hour into the shoot, I glanced aside and saw Inari pacing back and forth, a phone at her ear, speaking quietly. I closed my eyes, concentrated, and started listening to her. Yes, Papa, she said. Yes, I know. I will. I won't, she paused. Yes, he's here. Her cheeks suddenly flushed pink. What a terrible thing to say, she protested. I thought you were supposed to chase the boys off with a shotgun. She laughed, glanced across the studio, and started walking away. Bobby, Papa. His name is Bobby. Aha. Uh -huh. The plot thickens. I followed Inari's glance across the studio and saw Bobby the Sullen sitting in a folding chair near Lara, wearing a bathrobe. His impressive arms were folded over his chest, and he looked pensive and withdrawn. He paid no attention whatsoever to the shoot, or to Lara, for that matter. Inari, meanwhile, had moved a little beyond the range of my focused sense of hearing. I frowned, pondered, and kept on the lookout for incoming black magic. Nothing untoward happened, beyond an audio monitor spitting sparks and dying when I walked too close to it. They shot three other scenes after that one, and I made sure not to notice much. They involved three, uh, performers I didn't recognize, two women and another man. They must have been the crew Joan said would follow Trixie's example by showing up late. Of course, one of the people who had been on time was now in an ICU, and lucky to be there instead of the morgue. Punctuality was no protection against black magic. Sometime a bit before midnight, the puppy was asleep in a bed I'd made him out of my duster. Most of the food, without meat it seemed blasphemous to call it pizza, had been devoured. Trixie had flown into a tantrum an hour before, ranting at one of the cameramen and at Inari, and then stormed out of the studio wearing nothing but her shoes, and everyone was tired. The crew was setting up for a last scene, consisting of Emma, Bobby the Buff, and Lara Romani. I felt myself growing tense as Lara rose and I withdrew to the back of the studio to get my thoughts together. There was a movement from the darkness at the rear of the studio, 
only a few feet away, and I hopped back in a reflex born of surprise and fear. A shadowy figure darted out of a corner and headed for the nearest exit. My shock became a realization of a sudden opportunity, and I didn't stop to think before I went racing after the figure. It hit the door and darted off into the Chicago night. I snatched my blasting rod from my backpack as I ran by and sprinted into pursuit, bolstered by anger and adrenaline, determined to catch the mysterious lurker before any more of the crew could be attacked. Chases down dark Chicago alleys were getting to be old hat for me, though technically I suppose we weren't in Chicago proper, and the broader, more generous spaces between the buildings of the industrial park could hardly qualify as alleys. Foot chases still happened often enough that I had taken up running for practice and exercise. Admittedly, I was usually on the other end of a foot chase, mostly due to my personal policies on hand-to-hand -hand combat with anything that weighed more than a small car, or could be described with the word chitinous. Whoever I was after was not overly large, but he was fast, someone who had also practiced running. The industrial park was lit only sporadically, and my quarry was running west, away from the front of the park, and into, of course, totally unlit areas. With each step, I got farther from possible help, and stood a higher chance of running into something I couldn't handle alone. I had to balance that against the possibility that I could stop whoever had been attacking Genosa's people before they could hurt anyone else. Maybe if it hadn't been mostly women who were hurt, and maybe if I didn't harbor this buried streak of chivalry, and if I were a little smarter, it wouldn't have been such an easy choice. The shadowy object of my pursuit reached the back of the industrial lot and sprinted across twenty feet of almost pitch-black blacktop toward a twelve-foot fence. I caught up to him about halfway across, just managing to kick at one heel. He was running all out, and the impact fouled his legs and threw him down. I dropped my weight onto his back and rode him down into the asphalt. The impact nearly knocked the wind out of me, and I imagine it did worse to him. The grunt as he hit came out in a masculine baritone, much to my relief. I've been thinking in terms of him, because if I've been thinking her, I don't think I could have kept myself from holding back in the violence department, and that's the kind of thing that can get you hurt fast. The guy tried to get up, but I slammed my forearm into the back of his head a few times, bouncing his face against the asphalt. He was tough. The blows slowed him down, but he started moving again and suddenly twisted with the sinuous strength of a serpent. I went to one side. He got out from under me and immediately leapt for the fence. He jumped four or five feet up and started climbing. I pointed my blasting rod at the top of the fence, drew in my will, and snarled, Fuego! Fire lashed across the top of the fence, bright and hot enough that the suddenly expanding air roared like a crack of thunder. Metal near the top of the fence glowed red, running into liquid a few feet above the man's head. Droplets pattered down like hell's own rain. The man cried out in shock or pain and let go of the fence. I beat him about the head and shoulders with my blasting rod when he did, the heavy wood serving admirably as a baton. The second or third blow stunned him, and I got the blasting rod across his neck in a choke, locked one of his arms behind him with a move Murphy had taught me, and pinned his face against the fence with my full weight. Hold still, I snarled. 
Bits of molten wire slither down the chain-length fence toward the ground. Hold still, or I'll hold your face there till it melts off. He tried to struggle free. He was strong. But I had all the leverage, so that didn't mean much. Thank you, Murphy. I wrenched his trapped arm up until he gasped with pain. I snarled, Hold still! Jesus Christ! Thomas stammered, his voice pained. He ceased struggling and lifted his other hand in surrender. Recognizing the voice, I could place his profile, too. Harry, it's me! I scowled at him and pulled harder on his arm. Ow! He gasped. Dresden, what are you doing? Let go, it's me! I growled at him and did, shoving him hard against the fence and standing up. Thomas rose slowly, turning to me with his hands lifted. Thanks, man. I didn't mean to surprise you like... I hit him solidly in the nose with my right fist. I think it was the surprise as much as the blow that knocked him onto his ass. He sat there with his hands covering his face and stared up at me. I drew up my blasting rod and readied another lash of flame. The tip of the rod glowed with a cinder-red glow of light barely a foot from Thomas's face. His normally pale face was ashen, his expression was startled, and his mouth was stained with blood. Harry, he began, shut up, I said. I used a very quiet voice. Quiet voices are more frightening than screams. You're using me, Thomas. I don't know what you're talking about. I leaned forward, the blazing end of the blasting rod making him squirm backward. I told you to shut up, I said in the same quiet voice. There's someone I think you know on the set, and you didn't tell me about that. I think you've lied to me about other things, too, and it's put me in mortal peril at least one and a half times today already. Now... Give me one good reason I shouldn't blast your lying mouth off your face right now. The hair on the back of my neck suddenly tried to crawl away from my skin. I heard two distinct clicks behind me, the hammers being drawn back on a pair of guns, and Lara's maddeningly alluring voice murmured, I'll give you two. Chapter 15 the first thought that went through my mind was something like, Wow, her voice is hot. The second was, How the hell did she catch up to us so quickly? Oh, and somewhere in there, the practical side of me chimed in with, It would be bad to get shot. What came out of my mouth was, Is your last name really Romani? I didn't hear any footsteps, but her voice came from closer when she answered, It was my married name, briefly. Now, please step away from my little brother. Hell's bells. She was his sister? Familial dementia. She might not react rationally to a threat. I took a deep breath and reminded myself that under the circumstances, I'd be an idiot to push Lara Wraith. I assume that when I do, you'll lower the guns? Assume instead that if you don't, I'll shoot you dead. Oh, for the love of God, Thomas sighed. Lara, would you relax? We were just talking. She clucked her teeth, a sound of almost maternal disapproval. Tommy, Tommy, 
When you say ridiculous things like that, I have to keep reminding myself that my baby brother isn't as large an idiot as you would like us all to believe. Oh, come on, Thomas said. This is a waste of time. Shut up, I said with an ungracious waggle of the blasting rod. I looked over my shoulder at Lara. She was wearing black lacy things with stockings and heels. How the hell had she caught up to us in the freaking heels? Even for a wizard, some things are simply beyond belief. And she held a pair of pretty little guns in her hands. They probably weren't packing the high-caliber ammunition of heavier weapons, but even baby bullets could kill me just fine. She held them like she knew what she was doing, and sauntered closer through the heavy shadows, her skin luminous and showing, and really gorgeous. I gritted my teeth and beat back the sudden urge to taste-test the curvy dents in her stomach and thighs, and kept the blasting rod lit and pointing at Thomas. Back off, toots. Put the guns down, stop with the come-hither whammy, and we can talk. She stopped between one step and the next, a faintly troubled expression on her face. She narrowed her eyes, and her voice slid through the air like honey and heroin. What did you say? I fought off the pressure of that voice and growled, Back off! My inner Quixote was not to be entirely denied, though, and I added, Please! She stared at me for a moment and then blinked her eyes slowly, as if seeing me for the first time. Empty night, she murmured, her tone one of someone speaking an oath. You're Harry Dresden. Don't feel bad. I cleverly concealed my identity as Harry the production assistant. She pursed her lips, which also looked delicious, and said, Why are you threatening my brother? It was a slow night, and everyone else was busy. There wasn't even the hint of a warning. One of the little guns barked, there was a flash of scarlet pain in my head, and I collapsed to one knee. I kept the blasting rod trained on Thomas and lifted my hand to my ear. It came away wet with droplets of blood, but the pain had begun to recede. Lara arched a delicate eyebrow at me. Hell's bells. She'd grazed my ear with a bullet. With that kind of skill, between the eyes would be no trick at all. Normally, I would admire that kind of piquant retort, she said in a silken, quiet voice, probably because she thought it sounded scarier than if she said it loudly. But where my little brother is concerned, I am in no mood to play games. Point taken, I said. My voice sounded shaky. I lowered the blasting rod until it wasn't pointing at Thomas and eased away the power held ready in it. The sullen fire at the tip of the rod went out. Lovely, she said, but she didn't lower the twin pistols. The autumn's evening breeze blew her dark, glossy hair around her head, and her gray eyes shone silver in the half-light. Harry, Thomas said, this is my oldest sister, Lara. Lara, Harry Dresden. A pleasure, she said. Thomas, step out from behind the wizard. I don't want one of these rounds to take you if they go through. My guts turned to water. I still had my blasting rod in hand, but Lara could pull the trigger quicker than I could aim and loose a strike at her. Wait, Thomas said. 
He pushed himself up to one knee and put himself between me and the other white vampire. Don't kill him. That earned Thomas an arched eyebrow, but a smile haunted her mouth. And why not? There's the chance that he'll be able to level his death curse, for one. True. And? Thomas shrugged. And I have personal reasons. I'd take it as a favor if we could discuss the matter first. So would I, I added. Lara let the ghostly smile remain. I find myself liking you, wizard, but... She sighed. There is little room for negotiation, Thomas. Dresden's presence here is unacceptable. Arturo's independent streak is an internal matter of the White Court. I didn't come here to interfere with the White Court, I said. It wasn't my intention at all. She regarded me. We all know what intentions are worth. Why, then, wizard? That's a good question, I said, turning my head deliberately to Thomas. I'd love to hear the answer. Thomas's expression became apprehensive. His gaze flicked to Lara, and I had the sudden impression that he was preparing to move against her. Lara frowned and said, Thomas, what is he talking about? This is a tempest in a teapot, Lara, Thomas said. It's nothing, really. Lara's eyes widened. You brought him into this? Ah, uh, Thomas began. You're damn right he did, I said. You think I'd be here for the fun of it? Lara's mouth dropped open. Thomas, you've entered the game now? Thomas pressed his lips together for a few seconds, then rose slowly to his feet. He winced and put one hand to the small of his back. Looks that way. He'll kill you, Lara said. He'll kill you, and worse. You haven't got a fraction of the strength you'd need to threaten him. That all depends, Thomas said. On what? she asked. On where the other members of the house decide to place their support. She let out a short laugh of disbelief. You think any of us would take your side over his? Why not, Thomas said calmly. Think about it. Father is strong, but he isn't invincible. If he's taken down by my influence, it leaves me in charge, and I'd be a hell of a lot easier to depose than he would. But if I lose, you can blame me for putting the psychic wrist lock on you. Instant scapegoat. Life goes on, and the only one to pay for it is me. She narrowed her eyes. You've been reading Machiavelli again. To Justine, at bedtime. Lara became quiet for a moment, her expression pensive. Then she said, This is ill-advised, Thomas. But your timing is horrible. Wraith's position is already precarious among the houses. Internal instability now could leave us vulnerable to Scavis or Malvora or those like them. If they sense weakness, they won't hesitate to destroy us. Dad's losing it, Thomas countered. He hasn't been right for years, and we all know it. He's getting old. It's only a matter of time before the other lords decide to take him, and when that happens, all of us will go down with him. She shook her head. Do you know how many brothers and sisters have said such words to me over the years? He has destroyed them all. 
They went up against him alone. I'm talking about all of us working together. We can do it. Why now, of all times? Why not now? She frowned at Thomas and stared intently at him for better than sixty seconds. Then she shivered, took a deep breath, and pointed one gun at my head and the other at Thomas. Lara, he protested, take your hand out from your back. Now. Thomas stiffened but he moved his hand from his back slowly, fingers empty. I looked up and saw a bulge that brushed his shirt at the belt line. Lara nodded. I'm sorry, Tommy. I really am quite fond of you, but you do not know father the way I do. You aren't the only wraith who takes advantage of being underestimated. He already suspects you have something afoot, and if he thinks for a moment I'm working with you, he'll kill me. Without hesitation. Thomas's voice grew desperate. Lara, if we act together, we will die together. If not at his hands, then at Malvora's and his like. I don't have a choice. It gives me no pleasure to kill you. Then don't do it, he said. And leave you to Father's mercies? Even I have a few principles. I love you as much as anyone in the world, little brother but I did not survive as long as I have by taking unnecessary risks. Thomas swallowed. He didn't look at me, but his balance shifted a little, and his shirt rode up enough to show me the handle of a gun he had tucked into the back of his jeans. I didn't stare at it. I wouldn't have time to grab it and shoot before Lara could gun me down, but if Thomas could distract her for a beat or two, there might be a chance. Thomas took a deep breath and said, Lara. Something in his voice had changed. The tone of it sounded the same, on the surface, but there was something beneath it that made the air sing with quiet, seductive power. It commanded attention. Hell, it commanded a lot of things, and it was creepy to hear it coming from him. I was glad that Thomas wasn't addressing me, because it would have been damned confusing. Lara, he said again. I saw her sway a little as he spoke. Let me talk to you. Evidently the sway was induced more by the evening breeze and those high heels than it was by Thomas's voice. I'm afraid all you need say is goodbye, little brother. Lara thumbed back the hammer on both guns, her features calm and remote. And you'd best say it for the wizard as well.